October 13th. It's not Friday the 13th. It's Thursday the 13th. Did something happen today? Did I miss something? <laughs> Earlier, my good friend Jared Dillian, we're really thrilled to have him be the speaker today. It's kind of funny because uh, Jared, um, you know, we, we agreed to do the space today. And I think this morning at one point, he wasn't looking forward to it. But I think today's price action actually is the perfect setup and segue for Jared to uh, to opine. Um, so really great to have Jared. For those of you that don't follow Jared, terrific follow. Uh, he is um, writes the Daily Dirt Nap. I've been a subscriber. Um, former Lehman guy. Used to be an ETF trader at Lehman. So he's been in the trenches. He's not one of these ivory tower guys. Always has something interesting to say, and it's got a great feel for markets. So really excited to uh, have Jared here. So uh, I'm reminded of the saying, I think it comes from Stan Weinstein, actually. It's not the news, but it's the reaction to the news that counts. And, you know, being as bearish as I've been, being so smug and thinking I was so smart and had it all figured out. And I pointed people to the Cleveland Fed and everyone's, taking odds over is not going to be 0 0.4, 0 0.3, 0 0.6, whatever. And um, many have pointed out in FinTwit that the Cleveland Fed's had a pretty good record. I think they've gotten, gotten it right, <coughs> excuse me, uh, more than others. And I think they'd underestimated inflation slightly. Um, I think it was 17 out of the last 19 or something like that. So my money was on the Cleveland Fed. And I was right. Didn't mean I made money. I was thinking I was pretty smart as of 10 a.m. this morning, but not so much as the day wore on. So hindsight's 2020. Um, you know, I wish they told me this after the fact. But actually, Jared Dillian did tell you before the fact. Wish people told me before the fact. Actually, Jared Dillian did tell you before the fact. And it was all about positioning and sentiment. And I don't want to steal his thunder. So we're going to get into it in a minute. But uh, Jared, again. Um, got a really good feel for the market. Um, good friend. I see uh, Tom Thornton's here, another friend of Jared and others. I said, Jared, welcome. You're, you're used to interviewing people. Um, now the hunter becomes a hunted. Uh, we're going to turn the table. And um, I know you've got, you're on the air quite a lot. And so I'm sure you've got a lot of thoughts. So welcome, Jared. Please unmute yourself. And um, I don't know how you want to want to do this. I've, I've read some of your recent notes, uh, or you just want to riff for a little bit with an opening um, opening uh, uh, line, and however you want. But, yeah. So go, go, yeah. Go for it, Jared. Go for it. Thanks, George. And I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, we've been we've been trying to put this together for a while, and it just didn't happen. But I mean, talk about a perfect day to be talking about this stuff. Um, you know, I think if you were to summarize up today in a sentence, you would say market went up on bad news and that's bullish, you know, and then we could stop the spaces and we could get on with our lives. Um, but there's more to it than that. Um, you know, the, well, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my process. And, um, you know, unlike a lot of people in finance, I don't look at numbers at all. Uh, I don't look at things in a quantitative fashion. I look at things in a qualitative fashion. Um, I'm really an SAT verbal guy, not an SAT math guy. I'm a writer, which makes me kind of unique in the investment industry. And, um, you know, what I, basically my process is 
I pay attention to what people say. Now, a lot of that is Twitter, like 90% of that is Twitter. Um, and you know, you, you kind of, you kind of, you're, you're watching the t- tweets of the same 50 assholes all the time. Um, but I also talk to, you know, real estate appraisers and, um, you know, contractors and, you know, I live in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. This is a blue collar town. And I talk to, talk to people about the stock market and how the economy is doing around here. I watch TV, I watch movies, I listen to music, I pay attention to pop culture, I watch NBC Nightly News, I read newspapers, I read magazines, and every piece of information around you is a sentiment indicator. Every, every single piece of information, if it pertains to economics or finance, it's a sentiment indicator. And what I'm constantly trying to do is figure out how people feel about the markets if they're experiencing fear, if they're experiencing greed. And, you know, one interesting thing that's happened to me over the last couple of months, not a lot of tweets, but I've had a handful of people start to call me a permable. And George has known me for a long time, and he would be the first to tell you that I'm not a permable, that, you know, I have been bearish plenty at times in the past, you know. Um, I was, you know, not to, I mean, this is kind of, uh, tired, but, you know, I was on the short side in the mid 2000s. So, you know, I started in the last, I would say in the, going back to June of this year, I started to notice that the bearish sentiment was getting very extreme um, and, you know, caught the 17% rally in June um, and then kind of kind of got run over and going into today's CPI number, uh, I said, look, like, you know, I'm, I'm seeing tweets. This is, this is a tweet that I saw yesterday, okay? LOL, death of the financial system is more than can be expressed by a standard bear. We have entered the land of death. No one is bearish enough. No one. And that's a real tweet, and that's pretty representative of the stuff that I've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, where bearish sentiment... I mean, I actually talked about it in my newsletter today where, you know, bubble is a word for an excess of bullish sentiment, but we actually don't have a word for an excess of bearish sentiment. It's like a bearish bubble. And that's really where we were. And walking into CPI today, you had, you know, you had MACD divergencies, you had uh, DeMarc 13s all over the place. And, you know, actually what I thought was going to happen was that we would have a good CPI number. We had a terrible CPI number and we rallied anyway. Like I said, we rallied on bad news. And, you know, there's no way that all the shorts had a chance to cover in one day. I think what you're going to see happening is you're going to see this squeeze continue over the next couple of weeks. I think we're going to get a counter trend rally that is going to be at least as large as it was in June. And you got to remember that these these big turning points, these big counter trend rallies come from a peak in bearer sentiment. My favorite one of all time was 2008, March 17th. That was the day that Bear Stearns went under. And that also was the low in the S&P. And the S&P rallied 17% over the next three months. And a lot of the shorts got squeezed out and they missed the main event. They missed the main event. So if, if you're short, which, you know, I don't disagree with any of the reasons. I don't disagree with any of the data. 
if you're short, you have to be very conscious of these large counter trend rallies because you can get squeezed out and miss the main event. So you have to be nimble and you have to trade around these things. So that's my intro. So let's stay with it, Jared. We know bear markets are very tricky. As I think the saying goes, <clears throat> there are no winners in a bear market, or the winner is he who loses the least. Um, in bear market rallies, and let's stipulate that, and by the way, you haven't even made a statement whether we're still in a bear market or not, but I think it's fair to say that certainly up until now, we've been in a bear market. Whether or not the bear market ended today, subject to, you know, that'll be determined in the course of, course of time. But, you know, we had Walter Deemer um, the other day, the uh, esteemed um, former technician of Putnam Investments. And I read, uh, he left me a voicemail message, and he was saying there were just too many people anxious to um, call the turn. And, you know, listen, we, we like to consider the weight of the evidence. There are, you know, there are bull points on one side, uh, bear points on the other. And Walter's point was, and, and we also, we may be talking about multiple time frames, you know, it could be that you are completely right and we get a counter turn rally, you know, whatever it was 17% off the June lows, whatever. I mean, it's a pretty good rally for a couple of months and we haven't seen the final low. So it may just be a question of multiple time frames. So I guess, I guess the first question I would ask you, do you think when you think about multiple time frames, do you think like this is, what are the odds, what are the odds that this is a handicap? This is the end of the bear market, like, or, or this is just no, it's just another counter trend rally, possibly. And again, you know, counter trend rallies are a bear market counter trend rallies are, are a feature, not a bug. Or, or is that question to be determined and you don't look that far ahead? How would you put this rally you're looking for in context, Jared? You know, it's, it's, it's to be determined. You have to entertain the possibility that today was the low for the S&P and we are entering a bull market. You have to entertain that possibility. I think it's about 50-50. And the decision point will come six weeks from now and we'll have to figure it out, you know. So um, it's it's a matter of it, it, it's a matter of let me put it to you this way. I saw an interesting chart today, uh, 1974, which actually this bear market has a lot in common with 1974. In 1974, the S&P was down 46%. It was one of the great bear markets, the four great bear markets in the last century. We, we have a lot in common with 1974. And if you overlay a chart of the S&P in 1974 with inflation inverted, what you see is that when inflation peaks and start to head lower, that was the end of the bear market. Now, if you want to talk about inflation, like it was a terrible print today, but I think most people agree that the CPI lags a lot and the stuff that really lags is shelter. But when you're talking about private measures of inflation, if you're talking about real-time measures of inflation, food inflation is going down, used car prices are going down. Uh, I mean, you know, lumber airline fares, rents are going down. So we are seeing this stuff in real time and it hasn't fit into the data yet. And if you think the 1974 analog is correct, where the market bottoms when inflation turns, then this this really could be this could be the bottom of the bear market. Fair. Um, and by the way, Jared, you don't know this, but just to give this context, 
I've kind of, and we've got, these rooms have really been spectacular. We have a really smart audience here. You're going to have a lot of good questions coming up, but um, people kind of tried me, um, you know, in a good, in a good natured way uh, that I'm the Uber bear <clears throat> and I'm glass half empty. I'll admit to that, but I'd like to think I'll turn bullish at the right time. I, I just, you know, the bigger question, which no one's really knows the answer to is I don't think this bear market's over. Um, but it, it was funny. People said, well, why don't you bring, bring a bull in? And a credible bull, a bull. I said, all right, well, give me some incredible. So I just want to let you know, there's no pressure here, but um, if we're going to have like a friendly debate, like you've been charged with the, um, with, with the role of, of being the bull. And actually um, you have some, I'll, I'll give you some uh, reinforcements. Uh, the gentleman to your right, the wonderful Thomas Thornton, who I know is a good mutual friend. He can, um, he has glass half full tendencies as well. So, we can do a tag team thing. I, I, I don't mind doing a Bruce Lee. Let me see any other bulls we can get up here, but maybe Greer wants to be a bull. He'll just talk about energy. But in any event, we've had a plethora of um, bearish folks in these rooms the last few months. And, you know, the advice has been pretty okay. Um, yeah, we all want to know, I mean, getting the short term is hard enough, trying to figure out the long term. Who the hell knows? Let me throw another tidbit at you, um, which kind of struck me the wrong way. Um, and again, I'm not, this is a friendly conversation. I'm not, you know, I'm not copping an attitude at you. John Roke said this to me uh, yesterday, and he cites an article uh, from Bloomberg yesterday. It says, Bank of America inflows suggest investors think stocks are nearing a bottom. And he writes, we normally don't see these articles at bottoms. Article goes on to point out that for the week ended October 7th, Bank of America clients were big net buyers of equities at $6 billion, the third largest inflow since the bank started tracking the data in 2008. Uh, all client groups are net buyers, including hedge funds, private clients, blah, 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 blah. I mean, again, you know, the ability to hold two opposite thoughts in your head at the same time and not have you have your head blow up. So I take on board what you said and receive your message. But when you look at, like, and again, we can get lost in anecdotes. When you hear stories like that, when everyone's running around, you know, seven days ago, breath thrust. I mean, I think someone tweeted out the smartest comment I made. You know, if I hear the term breath thrust one more time, I'll retire to an island. I mean, how do you respond? What's your take on sort of the Pavlovian response that, you know, people just, they, they, they don't want to miss. They, 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 there's an, you know, FOMO creeps back in there ever so slightly. And Walter Deemer's like, you know, that's not the way markets bottom. Markets bottom in complete apathy and dejection and just get me the hell out. And I don't care. Like, what would you say to that, Jared? Well, I, 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 I'm, I've been looking at the same info you have with the B of A flows. I saw that. And I think kind of a, a, a shitty argument when you're arguing about this type of stuff is to attack the data and say that it's bullshit data. And I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to take the data at face value. I will say that it, uh, it doesn't square with, my anecdotal conversations with people that I'm close to, you know, people are paralyzed. I don't, I don't, you know, in, in, in my travels, I don't see people buying stocks. I don't really see people selling stocks. I don't see capitulation. Uh, but what I see is paralysis. Um, and it, this, this kind of leads me to another point. You know, I, I see this chart getting passed around a lot, sort of measuring the depth of this bear market relative to other bear markets in history. And I think, you know, in the last 100 years, we've had like 11 or 13, 20% drawdowns. You know, we've had four great bear markets. So in the context of the history of the stock market, this has not been the worst bear market in the world for stocks. 
But I think that's exactly the point. You know, one thing that makes this bear market unique is that every single asset class has gotten killed. Bonds are down 20%. Commodities are down. The dollar is up. You know, international stocks are down. Like, there has been absolutely no place to hide. So in a previous, you know, if you go back to 2011, I don't have the numbers on this, but the S&P was down 20% in 2011 on the European debt crisis. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to bet that treasuries were up, which dampened the effect of that. And most people are cruising around the 60-40 portfolio. Most people have a 401k that has target date funds. And they've been told all along that bonds move in the opposite direction of stocks. And it hasn't worked out that way. So even though stocks are only down 20%, I think in a lot of ways, this, this really is you know, almost as painful as some of the great bear markets. I, th- I, I think that's right. I'd agree with that completely. Let me just throw two other Walter Deemer lines at you. These are just brilliant. And I'll, tweet, I'll retweet these out. I've used these before. The first one you've heard, um, I'm sure, um, this is Deemer's Law of Perversity. Um, the stock market will do whatever it has to do to embarrass the greatest number of people to the greatest extent possible. I mean, how true is that? I mean, this is not an easy business. I mean, and as, uh, you know, I think it was... Uh, I can't remember who said it. Just when you think you got the, the, the rules figured out, they change them on you. But my favorite Deemer quote in this, and, and, and again, what you said is true, Jared. So what I'm saying is not in to rebut what you're saying. It's to be held in consideration alongside of what you said. And here's the Deemer quote, the money quote. It ain't when everyone turns bearish that's important. It's when they finish selling. So your point about apathy and no one doing anything Okay, it's true that if you look at the professional crowd, the hedge fund crowd, they've brought their gross and net exposures down. However, and we've talked about this a lot in these rooms, and I've posted this before, if you compare those exposures, not relative to the last three or four years, when we witnessed the greatest you know, bubble in, in, in financial market history, in my opinion, but rather look at net exposures going back to, say, 2009, 2010. You know, if 65% not that long is the new flat, well... I got a bridge to say, so that's number one. And I, I think, you know, those, those gross and net exposures, as you know, Jared, you've been in this, in this game long enough, they kind of drifted up over time because we're in this sort of secular bull market. And then when it comes to the public, you look at the same data I look at, and let's just take the Bank of America, um, you know, their, their, their high net worth clients, exposure to equities. I think it's gone from like 66% down to 63%. It's still like, you know, miles away from 50% or wherever it was, you know, 10 years ago. And so I get, and so, so I kind of look at this and I say to myself, and, I, and actually I was having a nice conversation today with an RIA. He says, you can't believe the conversations he has. Clients come to him, prospective new clients. They show them their, their portfolio. They're stuck in ARC or whatever other garbage they might have. And they're like, what do we do? And he's like, well, get rid of that stuff. People have been sold this bill of goods Stocks for the long term, you're entitled to 9% forever, regardless. Jeremy Siegel, please call your office. You know, you, you shouldn't sell. You can't sell. Um, stocks only ever go up over the long run. Um, and then there are all the other reasons why, you know, you shouldn't be selling. Uh, you're going to have to pay taxes. Or if you sell, you then create another problem for yourself, which is when to get back in. And my favorite, my favorite excuse for not selling is it's going to mess up your asset allocation actually allocation program. So I put all that together. It just seems to me, and I know you know these numbers, Jared, we had in 2021, 
what was it, a trillion or trillion two of money came into the market. And like, these guys haven't sold. I mean, you know, yeah, we get a week here, a week there, but on balance, they have they haven't hardly sold anything. And then it's, we'll have to, maybe this is a special topic or special run to itself. I'm sorry I'm on a rant here. But, you know, when I look at someone like Kathy taking in over a billion dollars this year, despite everything that's happened, again, we follow that under the heading of things you don't see at the bottom. So I don't know what part of that you want to respond to if I've triggered you or I'm full of it, but have at it, Jerry. Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I had a radio show for two years. I had a small nationally syndicated radio show that was personal finance. And one thing I talked about a lot were return assumptions, okay? So if you took a survey of individual investors and you asked them, how much do you expect to return each year on your stocks? So in January of 2021, return assumptions got to 15%. People thought that stocks returned 15% a year. Now, if you dial that back to like 2017, you know, it was pretty much long-term long run average expectations, people expected stocks to return nine or 10% a year. And my argument at the time, you know, yes, the stock market has returned 9% a year for the last 100 years, but the conditions that were present for those returns may not be present in the future, right? So I completely agree with you. And if you want to just like zoom out, zoom way out, like when we're talking about like decades, you know, I really don't believe that equity returns are going to be as high as they were for the last 30 or 40 years. I don't think it's possible. I think it's possible that we could have equity returns of four to six percent. I think it's possible that we could have a decade of basically zero returns like we had from 1969 to 1982. I think all these things are possible in the short term. I think we're going to have a giant fucking rally. Right. In the micro term, I think we're going to have a huge rally. I think all the shorts are going to get squeezed and I think it's going to make a big mess. So but on the long term stuff, I totally agree with you. That's fair. So as is often the case, it's a question of multiple time frames. That's quite often where uh, disconnects um, occur. You can have two people, smart people, basically in agreement. It's just a question whether you're focusing on the short, medium or long term. Um, I'd like to turn to our good mutual friend, Mr. Thornton, uh, Tommy has this annoying habit of uh, calling these uh, counter-trend rallies. And he's right more often than he's wrong. So um, I got to give I gotta give props to where it's deserved. So, Mr. Thornton, um, welcome. Our good mutual friend, Mr. Jillian, is here. So what say you, Tommy? Hey, guys. Um, and hey, everyone. So, okay. I, I'm really trying to stay very agnostic in the market and trying to use the tools that I have at my disposal, um, which, you know, has been pretty good at catching some counter trend rallies. Uh, but, you know, I, I worked for a hedge fund that was net short uh, pretty much every year. And we, we found a way to make money. Um, really smart people uh, just raised my game. But here's a couple things um, that I, I'm seeing that um, I, I'd like to, you know, have Jared... Uh, discuss with me uh first of all i don't think people are that short uh the short interest isn't i mean there's a there's a high number of shares that are set up short but i don't think accounts that are typically short are there um the the thing that i reference is morgan stanley put out some data saying the net leverage uh ratios 
is it the one percentile uh, as far as how big it? I mean, it was sixty-seven percent in November. Now it's thirty-six percent. So the, a lot of accounts are sitting on the sidelines with huge amounts of cash, uh, partly because you can get a return on cash now. Uh, Philip Lafont was at the Robin Hood yesterday or two days ago, and he said their their fund is in seventy to eighty percent cash. I've heard that through other you know prop firms and clients that I have that they're sitting in cash. They're lowered their exposures dramatically. I think people are just kind of sitting there saying, I, I really don't need to get involved here. And they're not necessarily short. Now, that brings me to another thing. Um, you know, we're kind of looking at the VIX. And, you know, even when the market was down this morning, the VIX was down. So there's a problem with the VIX that's not necessarily working as it has in the past. And I, I would attribute that to Charlie at Nomura said the other day that there's a lack of buying in crash protection type of options. So that's that might be a thing as well. So if if you have a lot of accounts that are, you know, typically, you know, mutual mutual fund or sorry, hedge funds tend to get short at wrong times. And they did that last July on those big gap down days and then all of a sudden everything squeezed in their face. I don't think people are set up short right now. I think people are set up in cash and the other thing that I, I will say this, I've, I've been through, I started, I started my career. Okay. I'm old. I'm, I started as an intern at Drexel Burnham and this was, I started in August of 87 and I was there that day, the market crashed and I knew nothing about anything. Uh, but I had to like answer the phones and try and give people their fills because there was no internet and you had to call your broker and find out the fills. And then you had to call the floor or however you could find the fills and people didn't get fills for days and they were panicked. And I can tell you the fear of those types of days hasn't occurred at all during this. And I would say that, that people just have apathy and not really giving to shits about their portfolios. And I think that that goes to show what George said, you know, Kathy Wood, her fund is down 80%, I think 80% off the highs. And she's still being invited to conferences to talk about her nonsense. So there's that. And there's still inflows that she's getting. Now there's $50 billion of inflows, according to Bank of America this year. That's insane because there was $50 billion in 2008 that was, there were outflows. So we haven't seen anything dramatic. There's no capitulation. And yeah, I'm looking for, you know, opportunities on the long side, short side. Uh, we're heading into Q3 earnings. I don't anticipate them to be very good. They could be, there could be another quarter of or earnings season of uh, better than feared. And that that's possible. But I just don't think that there's been any capitulation. And from a sentiment point of view, Jared, you've seen some of the gnarlier market pullbacks in your career um this just doesn't seem like anything's that dramatic so i'll leave it at that jared you want to respond to that or uh we can bring we can bring our other good friend um tony greer into the mix uh well yeah we'll get tony in a second um 
I mean, this it's not really something we can debate about because it, it's just a difference of opinion. Um, you know, I, 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 I opened a Twitter account in 2009. Uh, I didn't really use it in, until 2011. So I don't, I don't really have a baseline from what it was like during the financial crisis. Um, I can tell you that since 2011, this is, you know, some of the worst sentiment that I've, that I've ever seen, even, you know, even during COVID. Um, so, you know, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm sort of the qualitative guy, you know, I'm just, I'm just looking at this subjectively, not objectively, but subjectively. And, um, and I, I do want to, I do want to talk, you know, like I said, I, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing capitulation. But you do also have to entertain the possibility that, you know, bear is it possible for a bear market to end without retail capitulation? Is that possible? Can retail investors get bailed out by a rally and not sell? Or do they have to sell every single time? I mean, that's, that's really the question. And I don't know the answer to that question. And Jared, you put that very well. It's a very, very fair question, point. Let me ask you a slightly different question, and that is context. I think we would all agree that um, context is important, and I know I, I believe, and I don't know your opinion on this, we're going to discuss this, but I think sentiment indicators uh, work differently in bull markets than in bear markets. And, you know, I think it's human emotion, you think about it, people are likely to act a bit differently coming off the heels of, you know, this enormous uh, 13-year bull run, the great moderation, as opposed to where their heads would be at if there were a chop and flop market that rapidly goes sideways and you, you kind of conditioned to, you become conditioned to sell every rally and buy every dip. Um, whereas, you know, I could make the case, I'm just going to spitball with you, that maybe this is, and again, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure I believe what I'm telling you, but I just want to see you hear how you respond to this. This is maybe just a little boy that cries wolf. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it looks bad. Don't worry. Market always goes up. You know, the good Professor Siegel on TV said not to worry. Um, you know, earnings will yeah, they'll go down a little bit, but not a big deal. Great American companies, you know, Kramer out with the pom-poms, blah, blah, blah. What else am I going to What else am I going to do with my cash? You know, I'm not going to buy bonds. I'm not going to buy cash. Real estate's no good. And if I take the money out of stocks, what am I going to do with it? All right. And so, because you've always been bailed out in the last 13 years. And so my question to you is, you know, how do you think about context? And, 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 and I can't imagine you use your sentiment indicators the same way, regardless of whether you, you were in a, regardless of context. So I don't know what part of that makes any sense to you, but how about it? Well, let me answer your question with a question. Okay. Um, what would you have to see to make you buy? So I'll go back to, um, I mean, there are many old saws. I've been doing this for too long. Uh, but, you know, one of them is, one of the, one of the lines is, you know, when you, when, when it's a buyer to sell, when you, uh, let's say you're going to buy a stock and you have a whole bunch of reasons you're going to buy a stock and those reasons come to fruition and the stock doesn't go up. That could mean it was probably was already fully discounted or something else came along. So running the movie in reverse, 
we've got all, you know, we, we can, we, we're specialists in this from building the bear case. You know, stocks are expensive relative to bonds. The risk premium is too low. We're going into a recession. Um, you know, record public ownership of equities. Blah, 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 blah. You know, the Fed's going to keep raising rates until they break something. They've already broken the bond market. So, you know, I'm really good at making the bear case. Um, now, if you're going to say, well, George, it's the absence of the bear case or price action showing you that the bear case is fully on board. And I think, you, as you wrote in one of your notes you sent to me, sentiment was at, I don't know, zero or one or some crazy number. Um, you might, going back to the point you said before, but does retail have to sell? Maybe they're not going to sell. And then it goes, and here's the other thing too, Jared, which uh, complicates things. Maybe you could talk about this a little bit, given especially your Lehman background. And all these strategies, which they don't even go on sentiment. They're just, you know, whether it's whether it's vol targeting or uh, momentum strategies or this or that or whatever. So and so all what they're they're keying off is price is, is is price. So you always see those things. I'm sure you see the same rubbish I do every day from Goldman Sachs. Well, you know, in a flat tape, they're gonna have to buy ten billion a day for the next, you know, month and we got stock buybacks coming, and in an up tape, they're gonna have to buy thirty billion thirty billion a day, not ten billion a day, and yada yada yada. So it's not even based on, on sentiment. It's just like blind, you know, vol targeting or momentum. So what I, I'm not giving you a clear answer to your question. I mean, to me, it just becomes really confusing and really complicated. But I guess the short answer would be if a lot of this bad news came out, like, okay, so we had the Cleveland Fed number today, and that the market went up, was it because it was already discounted or did the market go up just a little bit? Because I was reading some nonsense, and you can, you can, you can speak to this. Some of the stuff I was reading on Zero Hedge and Elsewhere was saying, well, you know, you had a lot of guys who, who, who own puts and the puts were in the money. So they went to sell the puts and that creates buying pressure. And then the buying pressure causes the vault targeting guys to go up and the CT the momentum guys come in and blah, 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 blah. And one of the frustrations I have, this will lead to another Pandora's box, is also trying to ascribe meaning to things like every day. Why did this do that and that? this which is always problematic so long-winded rant in answering your question if all the fact if the market doesn't go down in in respect of developments that come to pass like tommy's talking about bad earnings down the guidance that's going to come forward then i would say even you know long-standing concerns about the market will ultimately go a lot lower that you're totally right in the short run you could get a pretty nice counter trend rally such as we saw from mid-june to uh Mid-August, how did you do? Oh, you did great. You did great. I think we both agree that... Jared, we're... Yeah, I'm Jared? Yeah, sorry. sorry. My, uh, my phone no is down. No um, I think we, we both agree that the market discounts, right? So anytime yeah. I see a move in, like, we did, like we saw today, I always ask myself, what is the market discounting? So... What is going to happen three days from now that caused the rally today? You know what I mean? So here's this is just my theory. But, um, you know, the Fed came pretty close to breaking the bond market. They broke the UK bond market. Um, We're getting mortgage rates above 7%. It's getting pretty stupid out there. I think we're going to see some Fed speakers peel off and say that we need some time to observe the effect of the rate hikes. And I think by the time you see those speakers, the market is already going to be up 5 to 10%. And by that point, it'll be too late. 
So the market, the move today is discounting something. And that's I'm speculating as to what that might be, but we don't know what it is yet. Well, let me look. So, so ask you, does it have to be discounting something? I.e., i.e., um, you know, if you go back a week ago, Friday, we had that horrible close into the last day of September. And then, you know, we had the vaunted breath thrust. You know, you know, it's, it's like, by the way, by the way, I have to, I got, we need to talk about Twitter mobs. Just note to self, do not let Jared get off this call without talking about Twitter mobs as a good country indicator. But, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, breath thrust, that has to go, that's a new uh, term that goes in the lexicon for all the cognoscenti who can spell Fibonacci or transitory breath thrust. Okay. All right. So you had that, you know, six days, 6%, two days. The biggest rally since, you know, COVID in March of 2020, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, four days later, it's like, oops. So was that was that discounting something? I don't know. So my question to you, I guess what I'd say back to you is, again, this goes to the quest for meaning. In the way you look at it, do you always think to the market that it's – I know it's productive trying to ask yourself the question, what could it be discounting? But what if it's discounting nothing? Just that everyone got all bared up ahead of the CPI number. It came. There was no one. There was no one left to short the market a bad CPI number. Some guys covered their shorts, you know, sold their puts, whatever, and we get a bounce. And the vigor of the bounce is just testimony to positioning. And maybe there really is no information content in this. And maybe a week from now, Thorne's going to be writing, "Oh, well, you know." I was worried about third quarter earnings and look at these shitty earnings and what happened today will just be a footnote. I don't know. Uh, Jared, I'll be very clear. I'm more full of questions than I'm in answers. I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We're just speculating. Yeah. yeah. So, so let, let's bring some others into the mix. Uh, Tommy had a quick follow-up and then we're going to go to Tommy. Yeah. So the, the thing that um, there's, there's two things, there's two, two points I'm going to mention, mention, and just um, I've always found that, uh, historically when the bigger the move higher and the more speculation that enters the market and let's just say the more fed stimulus enters the market uh the longer the bear market will last um and that that's just i've seen that i put a chart into the um twitter in my twitter and um i don't know how to put it in your thing george but the point is um i think we're kind of looking at it and saying, Oh boy, we're down nine months, but we've, we've just had like the most amazing amount of stimulus, uh, that's in the market still, uh, the fed balance sheet is still absurd. The other thing is the other thing, um, the CPI number today was terrible. I mean, there's every single place in the CPI was terrible and especially, um, looking at the OER, which is the, you know, for rents and, and housing, that's not coming down. And that's probably going to go up because you have housing that uh, with mortgages, uh, Barry Sternlich said this the other day on Bloomberg, you know, people have these mortgages that are at these low levels and they're not moving and the, they're not going to sell their houses because they don't want to get, get rid of their 3% mortgage. Um, and buy something with a 7% mortgage or a 6% mortgage. So that's, that's an issue right there. I think that's going to stay high. So 
my point is, and somebody's like our cleaning crews just walked in. Uh, what what happens if inflation stays elevated for a, a long period of time? And 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 that's I think the big risk. And I don't think the Fed's going to pivot. Even even if inflation comes down, they didn't pivot for quite a while when the CPI started to drop in in the early 80s. They didn't pivot. And, and pivoting means they're going to stop doing what they're doing. I mean, moderating it to 50 basis points, it's still high. So I think that you could see, you know, 5% on the Fed funds rate because I don't see, you know, any sign of a bullish... I can't, I mean, I'm thinking big time and I'm, you know, bigger picture, but we're at three and a half percent unemployment. I don't think the Fed's going to make any sort of maneuver unless you're well over 5%. And even at that point, I mean, that's, that'll probably continue to go up because once, Tommy, it, Tommy, once Tommy, it goes Tommy. up, it doesn't stop. Thorn, I'll leave it there. You're doing your Jeep Global left brain imitation thing. Like that's so, that's so yesterday talking fundamentals. We're here talking sentiment, dude. So like, I know I'm saying sentiment hasn't blown up. And if anybody looks at the CPI, you shouldn't be bullish. I mean, I'm, I'm, I look for tactical opportunities. It's very, very difficult to think anything more than, you know, a good 10% rally at this point. And that's, that's where I'm at. Okay. Bye-bye. Stay there, Tommy. All right, I want to do Emma, and then we're going to do Cancho. Emma, um, good to see you. What's up, Emma? Yeah, so, uh, hi, Jared. Uh, so I just wonder, you know, maybe if, like, considering, you know, I've known you for a while, and, and George, and, and the people we kind of surround ourselves with is can, can get to be a bit of an echo chamber of, of like, negative negativity. And because having managed money, we all tend to be more, like, prone to not want to lose it. Um, rather than, you know, your, I don't know if, I mean, I certainly know the crowd I follow is going to give me a very different um, sentiment read than, you know, what, I don't know, uh, my mom might follow or my dad or whomever, my brother. Um, so I'm curious if you think, if you think that might have any impact on, on where your thoughts are in terms of like why, why you see this like sentiment being like so was so negative and so you think it's going to come back or so I, I, I guess I guess you know, the question really is that Emma's getting to is trying to differentiate between the echo chamber the self-selected selected echo chamber I'm sure you're pretty wary of that and then how do you juxtapose the risk of the echo chamber with trying to keep tabs on what sentiment is more generally Jared? I think he fell asleep. Hey, Jared, can you unmute yourself? I don't know where he is. Maybe he's having, maybe, maybe he's having app problems. While we're waiting for Jared, when you resurface, please unmute yourself and um, want to hear from you. Um, in the meantime, let's go to Cantor. Hey, Mike, what's up, man? Hey, George. Hey, Thomas. Hey, you guys all doing? We're good. What's up? Oh, heck of a day. Um, so, yeah, in the short term, I think, you know, I think all bets are off. And, you know, when we're talking about a week, even a couple of weeks, even a month. Um, you know, I mean, it's anybody's guess, technicals, positioning, you know, any given Sunday, anything can happen. Uh, but I think, you know, again, the bigger picture has not changed. And you know, I'm a broken record 
we'll get bullish when housing gets better. There's never been a bottom in the market. I just tweeted uh, against, not against, <laughs> responding to a, a friend across the pond uh, who showed a chart of 1974 and how when, when CPI peaked in December, the market bottomed right around that same time. Uh, but again, just want to reiterate and what I showed in the tweet was that any of these CPI peaks that people are showing you happen to coincide also with major economic recovery simultaneously. And, and those all take place in the 70s when Burns was cutting interest rates before CPI peaked every single time. Uh, and so, you know, again, there's always a possibility something can happen that's never happened. But you know, that continues to be kind of how I view the world. And then you know, regarding earnings, earnings are only going to get worse. So, you know, how do you get bullish here? You know, you have to have a, P, a story that PEs are going to go up a ton or earnings estimates 12 months out are going to go up from where they already are, which probably is the lowest probability of anything. Uh, you know, when you think about PEs going up, or earnings going up, if I had to pick one, I'd say PEs are going to go up, especially if we're worried about inflation and interest rates. So rates have to come down a lot to get the economy back on its feet, to get housing anywhere remotely from falling in a bed. And I, I just, you know, outside of our short-term trade, again, bear market rallies can happen. We're kind of at that area in the bear market. We've undercut the previous low where there's a risk to that. But big picture, you know, I feel like the longer this bear, bear market goes on, the more myopic people have become. And I mean, I was at a dinner yesterday with 40 institutional investors and we were all talking about the you know, things within core inflation that, you know, no one had ever looked at. Just so, so granular. And it's like, big picture, guys. Big picture. Largest global tightening cycle in history. Broadest tightening cycle in history beyond just monetary policy. This is going to take a long time. You know, it's like we just ate two dozen donuts and you're like, hey, I don't have a stomachache. Give it an hour. So two dozen, that's, that's you know, even small. What's that? Two dozen? Two dozen yeah. donuts? I'd like I to see you do that, Emma. Oh, I can handle it. <laughs> I posted your, um, your thing to the uh, nest, by the way, and yours, Tommy. Um, your chart, Tommy, with the bear market lengths, and then um, yours with the peak CPI that you were just talking about, Cantra. Yeah, so, so just look at that chart. And again, you know, I've been saying this for the last several months. We're getting all of these reasons why the market's going to bottom and you know breath thrusts which completely got blown out of you know and the fibonacci retracements in the summer and you know there's going to be more stuff and you know at the end of the day a lot of my research now because the story i think is kind of is baked in the cake we're going to slow into next year is all I'm, all the research i'm doing now which is great for me because i'm learning a lot is just pushing back against the the, the bull cases and, and this is an example cpi is going to peak we're going to be off the races or the fed's going to pivot and, and the bull market's going to start. Hey, can't, can't, can't show you triggered me. Um, I got two research ideas for you and no credit needed. You can take them for yourself. Could you please do a study uh, on Fibonacci setups and debunk it for me? And the other one would be, um, well, I already did that. Oh, you, 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 you've done, you, you, well, you've done, you have, you have it. So, over, well, the point, over the summer, you know, the, the narrative was in August that we had, we retraced half the bear market rally and all these technicians were showing these tables that back to 1950 using the S and P, 
you know, because if the NAS, if you use the NASDAQ, it actually wouldn't hold, you know, you always got to love those analysis. If you pick the right universe, it, it works. But if you, you know, don't pick the other one, it doesn't work. Um, anyway, you retrace half the rally, which we did. You've never broken below the prior lows and it's always been a new bull market and we'll never have to see that again because it broke down and we, you know, we did break below the lows. Um, you know, we'll see if we're bottoming here and I would, emphatically disagree because and what I pointed out is, all right, look at the 20 times that's happened or how many, however many times. And this goes back to what I said, my broken record, every single one of those where it worked, or I'm sure the same is true for these breath thrusts or any, any sentiment measures for that matter. I, I, I implore people to go look at, you know, the global fund manager survey that uh, bank of America publishes. And, you know, there's great data. It goes back decades look at all the inflection points in all of those data points, whether it's, you know, cash levels are elevated or, you know, we're all bearish on the global economy. They all inflect when the global economy and, or the U S economy certainly finds a bottom in housing leading indicators and PMIs I'm a broken record, but why are we going to sit here and talk for hours about all these, all these in, inconsistent is, is the, is the operative word ways to think about a bottom you know our bear is bear sentiment away well no it's all over the map is is the pe level no it's all over the map is the market drawdown level no it's all so you, know, you got to find things that are consistent that's the only thing that's consistent so unless you know unless a housing recovery is around the corner or we get a recovery in the market that is and, and interest rates melt and pe's skyrocket which you know tell me how that happens without a major downturn in earnings I, it's hard to get to a real bullish story in fact over the summer there were clients a couple of clients that were like a little upset with me at how bearish we were getting and they're like you know what how would you put together a, a bullish you know if you were a bull you know write a report and i couldn't get myself to do it because i, I didn't believe in anything that i would come up with like oh the market's cheap everyone's bearish um you know we're oversold it's just all inconsistent Hundred percent, cancer. George, what was the second one? Oh no, I was joking with you. I was, I was like debunk Fibonacci. Uh, you said you already did that, and the other one is debunk breath thrust. I mean, well, all these terms. Look at the yeah. Look I at know. the date. Look at the inflections. They're all bottoms in the economy. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Cantro, just because people always love to hear your uh, hear your thoughts, just more generally for the average guy in the room. Um, just 30 seconds on, on sort of where you want to be, where you don't want to be. You, you've been very consistent. You know, we went through, we, we've been through largely, if not completed the, 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 the interest rate phase of the bear market. Now we're going into the earnings phase. And so just repeat for everyone again, sort of either by, 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 by factor or by sector. And I know you think sectors are nothing more than factors, but where do you want to be? And you know, where don't you want to be if you got to be in the market right now? So, yeah, we've got two problems, rates and earnings. And, you know, the biggest risk to my call, which is the market's going to keep going down into, into next year until we see housing, you know, bottoming in the near term around the corner. The biggest risk to my call is going to be bear market rallies, which are going to happen. Right. Nothing moves in a straight line, especially in bear markets. So, you know, putting putting making that statement. And so, again, the risk to anything I'm going to say now thereafter is obviously that risk, which you know, we'll try to we'll try to mitigate the risks by, again, kind of acknowledging where we are and what what, what has the potential to do that. But 
if you're thinking, if you're, if you're a buy and hold or a longer term investor, you know, looking beyond two months, you know, the, the clearest thing we see and what we're showing to clients is that, you know, earnings estimates are falling. You know, we can debate how much they're going to fall, but they're going to continue declining. Everything that leads earnings are pointing that direction. So how many times have earnings fallen in the last 30 years and what works? And whether earnings fall 3% on a forward basis or 30% you have a recession, the playbook is the same. It's, com- you know, it's, it's companies with strong fundamentals. It's not companies that are cheap. It's not companies that are growing rapidly. It's companies with high cash flow profitability, good interest coverage. And we're now getting into the earnings downturn where balance sheets are going to matter. Uh, and so free cash flow, interest coverage, and profitability. You know, keep it simple. Rock solid fundamentals is what you want here. This is not the time to be swinging for the fences. We're nowhere near a bottom. No, so, so, so no, no sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You want boring, basically, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, and, you know, we, and we've talked about like something like Arc. You know, the issue that she's and that portfolio has, and those types of stock have, is that they've gone from a, they're going to go from a duration problem to a credit problem because they don't have earnings. The worst performing factor consistently, both in magnitude and hit rate, the hit rate zero. When earnings are falling, and there's seven episodes historically, it's not a lot, but it's perfectly consistent 100% of the time, negative earnings. Companies that don't make money, not surprisingly, are not what you want to own when earnings are falling. It's the last thing you want to own. And so you know who's got a lot of that stuff. Thanks, Cantor. If you can hang around, I'm sure people have some questions for you. Okay, let's go to uh, Kevin, followed by Ken, followed by Jeff Garbaz. Kevin, uh, please unmute yourself. Hi, George. Thanks for having me again. Um, I actually uh, have a comment and a question I have for Jared if he does get back on. But, yeah, um... I just, just, just uh, <laughs> I, you know, I texted him. I don't know what's going on. I suspect the app blew up on him, but go ahead. Okay, so my comment would be that um, I, I guess I use a somewhat similar way of approaching the market insofar as uh, I think the two things that drive the market are confidence and liquidity. And so I have a liquidity model that I basically trade against and and use confidence against it. So I'll, I'll mention the question after. But what I will say about today and further to the comments that have already been made, um, you know, my model today told me that this was absolutely a buy this morning. And uh, I missed a career trade because it moved so fast when it did. But um, but it was liquidity. It was liquidity and positioning without question. And I would say that what hasn't been discussed so far today is the fact that the liquidity is still being withdrawn. We just had an update on the balance sheet at the end of the day today. It's down another $50 billion. So I would say that, that nothing can really be concluded from this bounce. It's putting us a little bit more in what I would consider middle of the range now that we've bounced back here. But... Uh, my question to Jared, if he comes back on and for some reason I've gone, is is if we talk about confidence, um, people have been so conditioned for so long that it seems to me that it, risk is no longer something that people truly understand or appreciate. Um, back during the, uh, the financial crisis, I managed a rather large debt portfolio. And I can tell you that, and, and you, you already saw evidence of this earlier today, really, to be honest with you, the bid just disappeared first thing this morning, right? If that bid disappears, well, 
you know, that's liquidity speaking, right? Uh, liquidity is a, is a finicky thing that's controlled by the confidence element of things. So anyway, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, just, I'll just leave the comment for now in saying that um, this was fully a positioning-driven driven rally. I don't, like anybody else, I start every day with the idea that I know nothing and <laughs> work from there. Kevin, I just want to repeat something. I'm a little bit confused. You said today was an extraordinary, it was a career, a career opportunity type day, meaning. Oh, you... I had, I had a bid in on calls expiring tomorrow and I missed it by one cent. So, and at so the end of the what... day, it was a 21, 21 bagger. On so, that so, so, so let me ask you. So you're saying once the market imploded, that was the opportunity to, to get involved. Yeah. In? Is that what you're yeah. Okay. It, 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 and you know, I ignored my model, essentially. I over, in part because I did not expect it to zoom the way it did. I thought I'd have time, so I, I right. got caught dicking for a tick. So let, me, and, so, uh, so let me ask you a question. Given that you, it sounds, if I heard you correctly, you don't think this has legs. So right here, right now, okay, like nobody knows nothing, so we're going to come in tomorrow. It's a new day. Assuming the world looks tomorrow like it does today, I mean, who knows? You'll watch the pre-market tomorrow and – who knows? Maybe they blow up in the UK again tomorrow because all the pension funds were told they have to sell everything by Friday. Whatever, something will happen overnight. It always does. Yeah. But but how do you think about where we go from here? Like, what's your thought process? Uh, a couple of things. One is don't leverage yourself in this market. And I think that should be clear to everybody by now. If you've survived this long, then you're probably not leveraging yourself. So you want to keep things tight. I think without question. Um, uh, I would also say that. You know, given one of the things about trading from the short side um, that I always think about is without a catalyst. I mean, we have a very much a grinding bear market without question here. But if you're trying to play it in options, you're getting you're getting murdered on the cost of of all. Um, so you get this grinding bear market, but you're always afraid in this market because, I mean, I've never seen such a such an environment with so many potential tape bombs, it, it, it just feels like you, you honestly can't be in a position where you're not either close to flat, you know, using the Gartman idea, right? You're either flat or short. Those are your two positions in a bear market. And I'm still very much of the mind that we're in a bear market and that we have not seen the bottom of this thing. Um, so the way I'm positioned myself in, in this particular situation, um, I am basically long value, short growth. Um, I'm, pretty flat going into tomorrow because i just don't know what to expect overnight um depending on how we come in tomorrow i do actually think that this thing this this rally could have legs if if the data tomorrow doesn't kick the lights out or we don't get a tape bomb overnight i think this rally could could carry up for a while uh, uh, like i say it's it's not obvious to me um you know my liquidity models a little bit it would kind of suggest it's a buy, but I'm, I just really honestly, oh, yeah. I'm, like everybody else, I'm afraid of the tape bomb. Right? Hey, Kevin, quickly, I know I was really wasn't paying attention because all eyes were focused on CPI today. But is there any news? Are there any? Is there any data or news of note coming out tomorrow? Uh, well, we've got retail sales, don't we? And uh, Michigan, so okay. you know, JP I, Morgan I, earnings. Oh yeah, the banks. Yep, good one, Emma. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep, earnings, yep, yep, exactly. Yep, yep. Uh, we also have, my understanding is, is that uh, the dollar swap lines between um, the Swiss National Bank and the Fed 
uh, are at an all-time high, which suggests liquidity problems right. may be related to Credit Suisse. Um, you know, there's just there's just so many things right now. You still yep. got the UK issue, and you know the yep. ultimatum there. So I, you know, like I say, I I think it takes a tape bomb. You know, it, it, the market's standing on edge with respect to potentially pushing things lower. You know, you're in a gamma situation that can go either way, right? Sure. So, hundred percent. I think, yeah, like I say, rarely does one see as many potential tape bombs. And the fact that retail is completely complacent, really. Yep. No, Kevin, hundred percent, hundred percent. Passive money more. hasn't started to sell yep. yet. Yeah. You know. So. And by the way, and by the way, to me, I'll just amplify that point. I mean, who knows? Listen. We're getting unusually short-term focus in this conversation. We normally don't do this sort of thing in this market, in this room. But I would also point out to people, I'm of the belief that you're going to see significant selling pressure in the form of uh, redemptions and, I don't know, I'd say tax loss selling. That assumes people still have some profits they want to, you know, <laughs> offset with, with, with sales. But I, I think the funds flow picture in terms of redemptions and tax loss selling, you know, maybe it doesn't kick in next week. I know the... The stock buyback, the blackout on stock buybacks, you know, goes away in a week or two. But you can pay me now, you can pay me later. Sometime between now and the end of the year, you're going to pay me. And maybe it starts tomorrow, maybe it doesn't start until December. I don't really know. Yeah, right, I'd thanks. like to hear some opinions yeah, on that, yeah. actually, by the way. Uh, yeah, Ke 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 yeah, Kevin, stay up, stay up there. I'm sure really good comments from you. I'm sure we'll have some questions. All right, so now we're going to go to yes. Ken, followed by Jeff Garbaz, followed by Michael Howe. Hey, Ken, how are you? Please unmute yourself. <clears throat> hey, Great. George. Thank uh, you for – Can you hear oh, me? Oh, sorry. Uh, you know, first of all, I don't really think I have standing to uh, talk in this room, but, uh, you know, I was, um, I like to keep things simple. And, uh, this morning I was watching, uh, Mike Wilson talk with Guy Adami and those guys. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, basically that's exactly where I'm at is, is that, um, financial conditions are tightening, liquidity is draining, and there's an earning shit show on the other side. And the only, the, the only model I have for that is going into O2. And so I just really don't, I mean, I'm 8% stocks and um, I'm, you know, I, I just don't know how you get bullish right here. Ken, you, you and I are on the same page. We had a great combo the other day. So I'm hundred percent with you. Um, and Ken, by the way, um, we are going to do that room uh, for RIA. We're going to the focus is going to be the challenges facing uh, RIAs and uh, wealth uh, wealth managers, and I'd like you to be you know co-host or major part of that. I'm going to try to put this together sometime next week. I I think it's going to be a fantastic uh, fantastic undertaking. I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll join us for that. If not if not lead that effort. So yeah, always always like to hear to you always like to hear from you, Ken. Ken, please stay there. Um, I want to keep moving here. We're going to go now to Jeff Garbaz and then Cross Border Capital, Michael Howe, and then the other Ken. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Hey, George. How are you? All good. What's going on, my friend? I think the first thing is, I think you're going to be shocked when I say this. Like, I don't think today was a very big deal at all. And the reason I say that is we've had this year now eight, 2% or more type moves and only two of them evolved into significant fall through. The first was uh, 315. We went up 8.3% after it from that day. So we went up 2.7, then we went up another 8.3%. And 617, we went up 2.52. And then that was the biggie. We went up 17.45. 
But all the other ones, um, 128, 225, 54, 526, and 103. That was that was like it. So like until proven otherwise, we could be down as much tomorrow as we're up today, especially given the comments that people made earlier. And the thing that I noticed from looking at all short squeezes, it wasn't really that big of a of a day. And likewise, the weakest stuff, it really wasn't that big of a day. What it was was a, a massive reversal from the intraday. Um, that that I think is the thing that a lot of people are missing um, out of today when they're commenting about, oh, this is the biggest thing we've ever seen. Like, no, it isn't. And I'll put all those dates and numbers um, up on my uh, Twitter page. Or actually, I, I'll have to get someone to figure out how hey. to show me to put it in the nest, and I'll put it in the nest. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. And Cantor, if you're still there, this is a perfect. This is a perfect Cantro moment, uh, Michael. If you're still there, so Jeff, you mentioned 6:15 as being uh, we had that that thrust, and then it went on. Um, if I could pretend to be Cantro, I don't know if he's listening or not, but I seem to recall. I seem to recall that was kind of when I let Cantro take it, but that was when we had um, bonds rallying uh, for in the ensuing days and weeks, and we had a nice counter trend uh, rally in the in the bond market. And what was the earlier date, Jeff, that you said where where it had legs? Uh, three three fifteen to the end of the month to like three thirty. And I don't know, Cantro. I mean, this is too micro. But do you have any thoughts about that that particular blip or not really? I feel like in March didn't we get like a soft CPI reading or something? I mean, that was so early in this. People were still thought we were in a bull market. Um, I don't recall. I know that we had about eleven percent rally uh, in that bear market rally. Yep. But I don't remember if it was something about the you know the war maybe ending or you know some kind of catalyst there short term. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, l- let me go run and look at the Bloomberg's. But Cantor, to your point, yeah. I mean, but, but George, George, one big difference: the global economy was pretty solid, you know, even back in March. Right. How quickly things have deteriorated from either PMIs or earnings or anything. Hey, Michael. Michael, let me just follow up with a question on that. How? Could we, or how likely, not could we, how likely is it we get to a phase where, you know, right now, whereas we're in this bad news is good news type mindset, what if we can just get to a bad news is bad news mindset? When does that happen? That most likely happens when a drop in earnings leads to a, 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 a round of layoffs. You know, when we get, when it becomes a real eco downturn, when it, come, when it becomes a recession, or right, then the, Fed, the Fed's cutting and nothing's changing. Yeah, there you go. Or it happens when people aren't expecting the Fed to switch places, to possibly pivot. So they have no reason to do the bad news, good news thing. Yeah, you know, I'm just looking here, um, Cantro. Um, so, yes, June 15th, thereabouts. I'm just looking at TLT using it as a proxy for uh, the long bond. TLT went from like 108 in mid-June to 120 in early August. You had a 10% bounce in bonds declining yields. Jeff was saying the 15th of March, um, it wasn't a bond thing. Bonds didn't do anything. It had to have been something else. I don't remember what it was. You're right. Maybe it was the Ukraine thing or something. But to your point, Cantro, the, I, you know, the, the drivers, the things that are causing the market to go down, are they reversing? And as a matter of fact, if you didn't know any better, and you just look at the bonds today, I mean, <laughs> equity is actually pretty well, all things considered. So, Cantro, yeah. let, me, let me ask you a slightly different question. I know it's your models, but I've actually never asked you this. If you, you know, it's, it's mental gymnastics, but 
some people refer to the equity risk premium. Um, they have all different ways of measuring stocks versus bonds. So my question to you is, whereas the down, and let's just use the, you can pick any time period you want, but let's just use, um, uh, let, let's just, let, 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 let's just use uh, year to date. And if the S&P is down, um, whatever it's down, let me just pull this up here. The S&P on a year to date basis is down. Uh, Garbage, you got the number? It's like 23. Right? 23. 23. Okay, yeah. 23. Okay, okay. So, 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 Cantro, if you using your Gordon discount model and all that stuff, because you're the guy with the numbers, if you just plug in, you know, into you, the risk free rate, you take it from wherever it was, one and a half to 390, you use a 10 year, whatever number you want, the best number that you use, okay? Um, and assuming earnings were constant, all right, how much should the market have gone down just based on the fact that rates have gone up this year? If, if that ratio stayed constant? Yeah. You keep talking about how, and I agree with you. I'm just trying to get into the plumbing a little bit. But if you were to plug in, you know, Ceteris Paribus, you take, you, you know, dividend discount model, you plug in, if you're using the 10-year at 150 or wherever it was at the start of the year, and then you change the equation, you put in the last sale, which is like 390. I mean, you crank that through. Doesn't that pretty much fully explain the decline in the equity market? It explains about... I mean, through June, it explained effectively 100% of it because earnings estimates were still rising on, in, in the aggregate. Right. So it explained 100 of it. Since yeah, since June, earnings estimates are down on a forward basis about 2%. Okay. So, you know, so yeah, it's all yields. Um, you know, should, should PEs be lower? Uh, I think so. But... I'm not going to argue with the market. You know, the market's always right. Sure. Uh, it, it doesn't give you your money back. It doesn't get revised. <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously this, this Fed pivot hope, like, I mean, I come across so many institutional investors and basically like, why isn't the market a thousand points lower today? Given, you know, and, and, and these are people, you know, we all, we all say we're so forward looking yet, you know, what this whole conversation so far has been about, you know, 10 minute periods today. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you're really forward looking, what's ahead of us is very ugly, and certainly for an economic perspective and an earnings perspective. Maybe not so much as for an inflation perspective, maybe, hopefully. But, uh, again, I don't think the markets is so forward looking uh, here. No, I'm with you on that. Hey, Jeff, did you have, Jeff, do you have a follow up comment before we go to Michael? Yeah, Hall? yeah, I do. I do have a follow up comment. So I, I find it interesting that <clears throat> the discussion of, of Fang is kind of disappearing now. And we kind of now have like an anti-FANG and the, and the new acronym for that is GAMMA. Google, Apple, Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon. And what's so interesting about George is they're all long squeezes. They're weak technically and no one is short them. And I think, I think that's a big theme that a lot of people are missing. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff I put it another way. You know what all those stocks have in common? They're all like pay top ten holdings of the Swiss National Bank. So someone, you know, you know another another thing, you know, especially Fang. These stocks have never seen a real recession. Like everyone thinks, oh, Fang held up in 2015. Fang held up in 2014. Fang held up in 2018. No recessions. Like you know, Apple as we know it for the last 15 years has not seen a recession. You know, forget about COVID. And that was not a you know, that wasn't a real recession. So 
a lot of people kind of, you know, in their minds are like, oh, these stocks don't go down so much. Yeah, I agree. I mean, these, these are going to get hit like everything else. So on that note, um, I have a good hedge fund client, well-known tech investor. He was just in L.A. for a private tech conference. And I asked him what the big theme out of it was. And he said, everyone, everyone is complaining about how bad business is on the tech side. And so the last comment I have, this, this is kind of more a throw out to the room one. Um, and, and I think Michael can answer this one. Great. So I heard a, a, a stat yesterday that we've had 61 years where earnings growth has risen and 31 years where it's fallen, yet the return in those 61 up years is 10.8%, and in the down years is 9.8%, positive. It's not negative. So the question really is, given where we are in the cycle, the reality is, do, do earnings actually matter? Given those statistics, which that's over a, that's 100 years of data. My guess would be that most of those periods where earnings are down, I'm not, again, I'm not sure how you're, if you're measuring that in this case, but if, you know, if we're, it's, if certainly it's not if we're, me, it's, so, it's someone else. It's not me. It's like, so. a, like a year over year change in earnings. I mean, we have yes, that exactly. Exactly. Year over year. I mean, through and, the 80s and 90s, when whenever the economy slowed, rates came down, consumers leveraged up and you had, you know, these soft landings often. So, you know, a lot of, I think all of this stuff, we always need to contextualize things. You know, why did this happen? Not just throw out a bucket of numbers. And yeah. the question today is, do we have that ability for a decline in earnings and stocks to go up? I think the answer is no. I could be wrong, but, you know, I, I think that's a backdrop we're no longer in. But I think something else we all, I don't know, I, I don't think I heard it, many people mention it, is the margin calls that were going on in the in the EU system, in the UK pensions and whatnot, and how that could also, I mean, they were so big and causing, obviously, you guys, most of you know what happened. Um, margin calls that they couldn't be met. They had to sell their gilts, causing gilts to fall even further in price. And, you know, the collateral becomes worth less and less and it's a spiral. Uh, could we not see that spill over into, so I was reading about it have, causing problems in all kinds of other parts of the derivative markets. like the yeah, class and, 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 and I'm going to tease you affectionately. And of course, as you as we all know, Emma, there's only just one cockroach. Of course, they're the only ones who have this problem, right, Emma? So they're not the only ones, right? Exactly. So you know, as <laughs> Dennis Gartman always says, there's never just one cockroach. You're 100 percent right. And then I wonder, though, because of the status of the Treasury, where they have a loss on their on their balance sheet, so they can't they can't give money to. I mean, sorry, when I say the status of the excuse me status of the Fed, where they have a loss on their balance sheet, they can't hand over money to the Treasury right now, right? Because they did. Right. And they, so right. then if that were to happen, you know, over in our system, it's not like they could just print their way out of it or, or do what they would typically right. do. Am I wrong? Or Yes. Yeah, so Emma, that's a really good segue to um, the other Michael. We have, God, I want to take a screenshot of this right now. I got the two Michaels up there i got cantro and Hal. so um we have uh the liquidity king himself um mr Hal, who might know a thing about british cockroaches um so um you know wherever the world's going perhaps the uk's get going there first so michael why don't you give us the update from your side of the pond 
what's going on with the global liquidity picture, and then specifically what's going on in the UK. Michael, floor is yours. Sure, George. Hi. Hi, everybody. Um, look, the, the UK is the, is the fly on the windshield of the world economy. Uh, the UK is being flipped around by, uh, by very tight global liquidity. It's a casualty of what the Fed et al. have been doing. Uh, it's absolutely nothing really to do with the UK budget uh, and whatever is going on with the government. That's uh, uh, a sort of errant view that's been put out by the Financial Times and a lot of the other media. Uh, it, it's basically to do with Bank of England errors and a lot of leverage uh, in the pension system in the UK. The UK pension system is kind of unique. Uh, it's a you know defined benefit scheme, about a third of its defined benefit. That's not really the same case in the US. And what a lot of these funds have had to do is basically to get duration matching, they've had to leverage hugely. I mean, we actually run portfolios in that space, so I know a lot about it. Uh, you know, we're we're not uh, you know we're not in the eye of the storm, thankfully, but a lot of, a lot of others are, and they have between ten and twenty times leverage, and this is just a, a big margin call basically that's going on. Uh, the thing that people are not saying is that a lot of these pension schemes, uh, having been very underfunded because of the rising guilt yields, are now very funded, uh, and what you're going to get is an asset allocation shift uh, out of stocks and other assets uh, into British gilts. Uh, and that's that's inevitably what's going to happen because they're going to, they're going to lock in their funding. Uh, so that's the next thing that's going to happen. So the gilt market may well rally paradoxically in all this. But let me just say something about uh, the sort of broader picture. Uh, we monitor global liquidity. It's something I've been doing for, uh, you know, probably 30 years now. Uh, the situation looks looks dire. I've never seen a collapse in global liquidity as rapidly as this. Uh, and as maybe as pervasively, it's being driven by the central banks. They're trying to break something. They don't know how uh, aggressive they've been in, uh, they're being in many cases and something bad will break and they'll have to turn around. And I think we saw evidence from the Bank of England, the alacrity with which a central bank would change, uh, you know, change gear or change direction even uh, if there is a threat to the core markets, their core markets, uh, which in the case of the UK is the gilt market which in the case of the U.S. is the Treasury market. Uh, so just wait, it's, pr it's probably coming. Now, what I would say to pick up on what the Fed is doing, uh, every week for pretty much through this year, we've been putting up uh, on this day, on the Thursday, a track of what the Fed is doing in terms of liquidity in the markets and what the S&P or the SPX has been doing. Uh, it's up on our uh, Twitter feed at the moment. That's at crossbordercap. That's the handle. You can look at it. It's there pretty much every week. And it's been plotting exactly the same story. Uh, this is not the balance sheet, I'd stress. This is the effective liquidity injections that the Fed makes into the money markets. It's a different metric, but it's a much more important one. It derives from the balance sheet. Uh, if you look at that chart, you can basically do a straight line down to where the Federal Reserve is, is uh, slated or projected to withdraw liquidity. They're saying they're going to take another one to one and a half trillion out of the markets, draw a straight line. That's saying the SPX goes under 3,000, uh, probably, if they're, if they're true to their word. I don't think they're going to get there. I think things break first, and they'll have to do some, some form of pivot. But, hey, this is the direction we're going in. Uh, as a heads up to that, uh, I heard Jared talking earlier on saying, what is the market discounting? Well, in my experience, uh, if you look at the fixed income markets, which in many ways are the truth here, uh, Fixed income markets are driven 80% by fundamentals, 20% by sentiment. In stocks, it's kind of the other way around. It's 20% fundamentals, 80% sentiment. 
And you've really got to look for the truth in the fixed income markets. Best way to value the fixed income markets is to look at a slightly wonkish number, which is the term premium. And you can look at the term premium on the U.S. Treasury market. It's published every day by the New York Fed, their estimates. We do our own estimates. Uh, what those numbers are telling us from our estimates is that term premium is negative, uh, which is a very curious thing to have. Uh, worse than that, it's the lowest lever level ever. Right. You've never seen a term premium estimate on the U.S. 10-year bond as low as and as negative it is now. That is telling us something. It's either telling us one of three or all of three things. Number one, there's a really bad recession coming and the fixed income markets have got the heads up on that. The second thing is there's a structural shortage of collateral in the system. That's obviously bad for leverage. And the third thing is there's a big liquidity squeeze. Well, we can attest to the third. Uh, we suspect the second. And the first, hey, who knows, but the data is not looking good. None of those three things are good for stocks, right? If you want a heads up to what's going to happen to earnings next year, just plot the term premium on the U.S. 10-year bond advanced by 12 or 15 months against SPX earnings growth. What it's telling you is that next year is going to see minimum 25% down. That tracking is really good historically. Just take a look at it. So I'm pretty bearish. Our view has been through this year that the Fed is trying to get the balance sheet down and the US dollar up. Um, the story next year is that reverses. They want to get the dollar down and they want to get the balance sheet up. We're not there yet. It's coming. But the markets are going down in the near term. And I think I'll end with just a comment. I think, George, you made this comment in a, uh, in a spaces probably six months ago, which was, in the Nasdaq bear market, when Nasdaq went down 82%, but correct me if I'm wrong, there were 12 days when the market rose by more than 20% on a day, not a stock, the entire market. Is that right? That's a bear market rally. Yeah, no, you, you, you're you directionally right, but the number's just a little bit off. I actually have those figures committed to memory because that's from John Roke. Uh, Roke pointed out, I believe, that in the uh, uh, from from March of 2000 to the fall of 2002, when Nasdaq fell 80 percent, there were 10 counter trend rallies exceeding 15 percent, 15 counter trend rallies exceeding 10 percent. The market actually rose, I think, for on 46 percent of the trading days. So, bear market rallies, to your point, which I think is really the key thing, rather than getting caught in the figures, bear market rallies are a feature, not a bug. Um, and so you're totally right on that. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I'm not sure when you came to the room, Michael, but in our attempt to always try to try to ascribe meaning to every zig and zag, it's really a fool's errand. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, Michael, Michael, how particularly today, and Michael Cantor is going to follow the question, I think, or observation, Michael, particularly today, when you see, um, yields up as much as they were i mean it, it's just it doesn't make any sense really what happened and, and and i'd ask you just a bigger question um so you had that panic day a week or two ago whenever it was when the gilt yields went to i can't remember where they peaked five percent or wherever they were right and they came and then they came off and when i looked this morning or yesterday they're almost back to where they were and 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 and, 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 and so despite whatever they're doing there it's, you know, it's just delaying the pain, just sort of stretching all out. So I guess the question I ask you, Michael Howe, um, and someone put this argument to me, I thought it was quite interesting. Rather than looking at um, trying to figure out interest rates as one normally would do, you say, okay, right, well, you know, what's growth, what's inflation, 
let's put a risk premium on the um, on the on the inflation rate. What's the real yield? Bada bing, bada bing, bada bing. So you know, if you thought inflation was anchored at two, and you say, well, the real yield should be one, one and a half. It should be three and a half. Whatever. All right. So a couple questions I have for you around that. Uh, so first one is just the methodology. When you get right down to it, you think about what really are rates. Rates are nothing more than supply and demand for money. And forget about, you know, whether the real rate's too low or too high. It's sort of like saying, well, is the P.E. ratio on a stock too low or too high? If there's more buyers and sellers that goes up, the more sellers and buyers it goes down. And so um, when you had all this global liquidity um, uh, doled out in the wake of the pandemic, looking for a home that bid down interest rates, um, a lot of money on offer, a few takers, we know got, you know, uh, 10-year yields, interest rates down to all-time lows really having nothing to do with what was fair value for interest rates. And so I asked, put the question to you, sorry for the run on, but I'm trying to give you context. I think most have been surprised that bond yields have gone up as much as they have. And my question to you is, um, forget about where real rates are. You may say, okay, in the long run, you know, it's fine, yada, 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 but that's a whole other discussion. Depends upon anchoring of inflation expectations. We'll get to that in a minute. But if you just say, right, the, 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 the buyers of bonds or rather, or the sellers of bonds have picked up. Uh, the Fed's not buying bonds. Central banks aren't buying bonds. Um, you know, banks aren't buying bonds. Uh, in some cases, you have four sellers of leveraged positions, and you just say, right, it's just simple supply and demand for bonds. Like, who's going to buy the bonds? And, and where I'm going with that question is, who's to say that we haven't seen the top in yields? That yields may continue to rise because if you, if you just have leverage if, if there are no natural buyers and think about it you're 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 okay you can own the two-year you know make 4.3 percent or 4.4 percent whatever it is today unless you think there is going to be a serious recession you know you'd say to yourself all right well look at inflation look at the real yields do i really want to buy a 10-year piece of paper talking in the u.s with a 390 yield so i, I know i'm, 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 I'm rattling on as i usually do when it's as if we're in your office out push out you know spitballing with each other but if I were to say to you, Michael Howe, who's to say the 10-year, not could it go, of course it could go, but the likelihood that just the rates have gone up a lot more than people had thought was possible, that the likelihood, the probability that just using the 10-year as a benchmark, they may continue to go up even considerably from here. What would you say to that? Well, I think it's, I think it's possible, but I think something would happen before that. Uh, and let, let me explain what I, what I think you know, will happen. Now, <clears throat> And this, this involves a little bit of, a, of, of some maths in terms of what's happening in the US and what's happening in, in Britain. There was a huge, as we know, a huge uh, turbulence in the UK gilt market, uh, allegedly because of the UK budget, right? Look at the math of the, UK, of the UK fiscal situation right now, okay? Or sorry, just before the budget. The UK had mandatory, sorry, tax revenue minus mandatory spending, so entitlement spending, less defence... <laughs> a figure which then covered the interest payments on the debt 1.8 times, right? After the budget, um, it went down to about 1.2 times. So in other words, you could say effectively UK Inc. Uh, is solvent, right, on that basis. It doesn't exclude discretion, it excludes discretionary spending, but in terms of what the government has to do, it's, it's solvent. What's that same number in the US? The answer is 0.8, okay? So the US does not cover its interest payments with that, uh, with, with, you know, with uh, tax revenue minus mandatory spending plus defense. It has to borrow to get to that, right? It's in a worse fiscal situation. 
What's that number in the US in five years time? Uh, according to the CBO, this is the CBO's own numbers, uh, Congressional Budget Office. Answer is 0.3. OK, it looks absolutely dreadful because entitlement spending shoots up. Now, what you're saying is that's an is that a great environment for fixed income and fixed income are the benchmark for equities? No, it isn't. So what's going to come? Yield curve control. And effectively, we've had it in the US before uh, in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, we've got it in Japan. It's been successful. It's got we've got it in the eurozone and we've got it in the UK now. And interestingly, both Janet Yellen, when she was Fed chairman, and Lael Brainard, uh, when she was at the Fed in a previous capacity, were both big advocates of yield curve control. It's coming. Uh, and that's that's the way they square the circle. Hey, George, Jeff, real quick question for you uh, related to this. Um, did you see the comment that Janet Yellen made this morning? No, please tell us, Jeff. She said that she is concerned about the liquidity of the U.S. Treasury market. So I find that comment really pertinent to the discussion right now. And second part, so A, what do you think about that? And second, have you ever heard a U.S. Treasury Secretary make that type of comment? Seems kind well, of so, 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 Jeff, let me have a go at that. And then I want Michael Howell to weigh in on that one. So I can't remember who tweeted it this morning, but, but someone had a brilliant comeback to that question. It was, there are no such things as bad bonds. There are only such things as bad bond prices. Oh, for my money, um, you know, uh, I think she's close. Well, are you talking about the auctions that were today? Because Janet Yellen actually said it yesterday. Comment was yesterday. For some reason, nobody picked up on it. No, no, Emma, I'm not talking about the auctions. I'm just talking about in general, right. the, fact, the fact the U.S. bond market is doing so poorly. So, Jeff, there are no such things as bad bonds. The only thing is bad things is the only thing is such things as bad, bad bond prices. And keep in mind, this is from a person who said we'd never see another financial crisis in her lifetime. So, Michael Howe, what, what would your response be to, to Jeff's questions or points? I think it's absolutely spot on because I think that that's the big danger. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily breaking uh, the credit markets this time as they normally do. What they're basically doing is, is effectively breaking the, the Treasury market, which is even worse. And there's a great danger there. We, we do a daily track, which is looking at um, underlying market liquidity in the U.S. Treasury market and in the U.S. FX markets. And this is down to 2008 lows. Um, you know, this is how bad it is. The, you know, the, the U.K., as I said, is a fly on the windshield of the world economy, but it's suffering the same problem. Uh, this is a malfunctioning right. of markets and the central bank should be in to support it. Awesome. I just want to hold it right here for one second. I want to go to Cantro. And then we're going to go to uh, Bobby J. Cantrell? Um, yes, yeah, so this was uh, when Crossborder was talking, Michael, uh, about liquidity. Couldn't agree more. Um, so just just wanted, again, to highlight a couple stats, big picture stuff. So we now have got, uh, with rates hitting new highs again today, 20, 22 months of rising uh, long rates and falling economic activity. Uh, and so the ISM new orders peaked uh, the end of 2020. And so that now is 21.7 months. Uh, if we mark today the high in yields, not saying it is, but uh, so and that's important because again, it's interest rates that lead liquidity and lead money supply growth by, and it leads money growth by about nine months. So as weak as money growth is starting to decline now, it's gonna fall at least another nine months. Um, and certainly if the Fed keeps hiking, that, that'll push it beyond there even longer. 
So that's just one important stat, Chris, again, when you're looking back in history and saying, well, things are pretty bad from an economic front. They usually don't get much more, much worse than this. All the pain is still ahead of us. You know, it's just, it's, and going back to my oversimplified donut example, it's like we just ate two dozen donuts and I'm starting to feel the stomach ache and someone just gave me another dozen donuts and said, keep eating. Cause that's, that's what we're doing. And that's, that's what we're doing with rates. Keep going. Awesome. Up, you know, yeah, awesome. Cancer. Awesome. All right, so listen, we got Bobby J, and then we got uh, Jim Bianco. Hey, Bobby J, what's going on? Hey, George. Uh, Michael Howell, I have um, two quick questions for you. Uh, Number one, if we're looking at your liquidity indicators, your dashboard versus the Fed's or the financial conditions uh, index, the financial conditions index – doesn't look that bad because spreads aren't widening. That's not where the that's not where the problem is. As, as you mentioned before, credit has been moved to the sovereign um, balance sheet, so that's not a spread issue. That's a duration issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, would you say that the financial conditions index is understating um, financial conditions? Yes, I mean, I, I think absolutely. But I think the credit markets are going to worsen for sure. I mean, you know, I mean, the way that I, the way that I, uh, I I look at the credit markets is look just look at credit spreads and chart that against the inverted yield curve on the long end of the market, the five ten spread. It's been a fantastic predictor about a year ahead. And what that's telling you is that credit spreads are going to well, they're going to keep blowing out. But you know, look at the yield on the on the triple C junk. I mean, that's uh, you know, what is that touching seventeen percent? Uh, yeah. It, it's not looking good. Uh, this is this is not a rosy picture by any means. It's going to yeah. get worse as well. And, and and the other comment I have is um, back to the um, liability strategies. Um, I think we're up to three and a half trillion globally for liability strategies, and uh, over a trillion in the U.S. And I've looked at some of the providers of this from um, uh, Frank Russell, BlackRock, BNY Mellon is a big provider, and when you read uh, the descriptions of these strategies, they are to reduce risk and increase returns. Right. And this feels a little bit to me like Orange County and portfolio um, insurance. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really great analogy because I think it's very similar. I mean, the, these guys are, 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 if you like, misapplying leverage. Uh, a lot of these schemes are really highly leveraged. As you probably know, uh, I mean, we're, we're in that space, but, you know, we see other people that have got 10, 20 times leverage. And the problem is they don't have access to margin. And the problem is that what you're doing is you're asking these pension plans uh, to give you margin when they're used to making decisions on a, on a three month basis, not, not on a three hour basis. So you're just not getting it. Uh, and that's why there's forced liquidations going on. Here's a quick a quick quote from a from the UK pension protection fund in 2015 if you look at some statistics of the amount of collateral we could be called to post, it runs into the hundreds of billions for a one percent rate rise mm, scary as they say emma probably nothing okay so now um and i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna jim it's, it's t-ball time mr bianca i'm talking to you so uh, i actually do listen to you uh and i do hang on every word so i remember a month ago, a few weeks ago in this space, you were rattling off statistics about the number of weeks, consecutive weeks, I think it was nine weeks, that the bond market went down and you cited 
I can't remember who you were having the conversation with. The three or four times this has happened, and what happened each time after you had the nine weeks of declines, and it ain't good. Could you, uh, just for context, maybe um, summarize that argument and mark that to market right now? Welcome, Jim. Yeah, thank you. Uh, George, the laser eyes are off, and I can see everything clearly now. So it finally came. And, George, the other thing I was going to let you know is that my wife had unfollowed me, and now she's refollowing me because the laser eyes are gone. So at least I picked up her. Hey, 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 Jim, as the say goes, just follow me for additional award-winning tips. Go on, Jim. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll, get to the, I'll get to the consecutive weeks in a second, but I wanted to follow up on some earlier comments real fast. Uh, you know, about the 2% days that Jeff was talking about, uh, some of those days are very interesting because you had March 15th in there. That was the day before the Fed raised rates. You had June 14th in there. That was the day before the Fed raised rates 75 basis points. You've had a lot of these big moves off of news events like the Fed was raising rates. And then everybody does this sound like familiar from today? The Fed would raise rates 75 basis points and the market would rally. Oh, that's it. That's it. Now, this is this is peacockishness. And it would rally anywhere from a couple of days to a few weeks and it would roll over. Now we've got the market reversing today on the news and everybody's saying, oh, this is it. Uh, peak inflation and it's going to roll over. Well, well, we'll see. And the last comment on that is I'm old enough to remember last week, Monday and Tuesday, the stock market was up 5.7 percent, two straight days in a row. The best two days that it had had since April of 2020. And everybody said this meant something. And that was it. It was a two-day rally. And within the next three days, we gave it all back. Now, I'm not saying we're going to give this all back. But this is what happens in a bear market. And I'll conclude this section. I'll talk about the consecutive things. I'll quote Mark Yersko. Uh, 3% rallies don't happen in bull markets. They only almost exclusively happen in bear markets. It's almost a hallmark of a bear market is three to 5% rallies that just rip your face off. And then they just kind of roll over and die. Um, as far as the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the bond market this week is going to be the 12th consecutive week that the yield on the 10 year is higher for the week from Friday to Friday. Now, unless we have a dramatic plunge in yields, uh, this week, I think we'd have to be down about 12 or 13 basis points tomorrow in order to not be 12 consecutive weeks. That, so I've got daily data back to 1962. This ties 1973 at 12 weeks and only 1984 at 13 weeks has been longer. That's it in 60 plus years. So what you've been seeing happen in the 10 year yield is every week since the first week of August, we've had higher yields every single week. What I mentioned a couple of weeks ago was when you get to week nine in this scheme, there's been a couple of week nines, a couple of tens, and now we're about to do uh, uh, 12. The stock market really runs into trouble. And what I, what I postulated, and that's what it had been doing through nine o'clock this morning, <clears throat> what I had postulated was when you start seeing runs in the bond market of 9, 10, 11 weeks, 8 weeks, 2, that that's about all the stock market can take. It can't take it anymore. And it really starts to struggle. And historically, 
the way that you get the rally, uh, the way you get the consecutive weeks to end is the stock market just takes it on the chops because one of those nine-week strings was October of 87. Another one of those was April of 1994. And for market historians, if you'll recognize those dates, those were dates when the market got smashed. Uh, you know, while well, 87 was the biggest crash um, in history. So what's been happening with yields is that I think that they're at that point now where the stock market can't really take it much more that yields will continue to go higher because it's been three months since we've had a down week in the 10-year note. Now, what will typically happen is what I postulated was one of two things ends this. Either the Fed does pivot, but they're going to do the opposite of that after today's inflation numbers. Uh, they're doubling down. In fact, the market is pricing in not only a 100% chance that they're going to raise rates 75 basis points in November, but a better than 50% chance there will be a fifth consecutive 75 basis point hike in December to put the funds rate at the end of the year at 450 to 475. And there's already a lot of ideas out there that the terminal rate, that's the rate which the Fed ends its rate hikes, is now 5%. So there's, there's no, we're going the opposite way in the bond market as far as where we think the Fed's going to go. And that's why I think the stock market has been struggling so bad, especially in the last few weeks, under the weight of all of these higher rates and why people are demanding, like Kathy Wood with her open letter, are demanding that the Fed stop, uh, begging, pleading that the Fed stop. <clears throat> and unless the Fed stops, the only thing that's going to stop them, I think, is that the market is going to get so bad that it's going to just engineer a flight to quality rally. So, 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 so Jim, put it another way, for the average person in the room, always try to put oneself in the position of the average guy in the room. Basically, you think rates are going to continue to go up. I don't put words in your mouth, but... The thing that's going to stop rates going up is the stock market taking on the chin. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Either one of two things. Uh, I'll try and get a little. I'm going to get a little technical here, but I'll try and explain it as clearly as I can. Either the stock market takes it on the chin, or the Fed caves. One of those two things have to happen. But y even yesterday, Fed officials were saying they're not going to pivot, uh, and and a beat on inflation is not going to get them to cave. So you've got the stock market taking it on the chin. Now, the last thing I'll mention about the about rates is if you look at the yield curve, and I'm talking about the difference between the 10-year and the two-year, and the 10-year finished the day 52 basis points below the two-year. That is a very uh, that is a very inverted curve. I guess that's bad English, but that is a big negative for the curve to be that inverted. That's the way I should say it. Minus 52 basis points. The most it's been in the last 40 years, minus 60. So it's about the most extreme that it's been since the early 1980s. Now, what does that mean? Well, the short end is up. The two-year note is up at around 440, 442, because the Fed's going to raise rates. This long end, the 10-year, is actually at a lower yield than that. Because the market is worried there's going to be a recession. Because in a recession, you want to own the safest, least credit risk instrument, and that would be a treasury security. And you want to own the long end because the Fed is going to be slow to pivot, so it's not going to bring the two-year down. 
You want to own the 10-year because you can get some capital gain as the price goes up and the yield comes down. If that yield curve were to break minus 60, go to minus 65, minus 70, I think what that tells you is a market signal we're going to go into a bad recession. Because I think that when the yield curve gets very inverted like that, it is everybody pile into the long end because everything's going sideways. I don't want to own credit. I don't want to own anything with risk. And they and it rallies and it falls. The front end is a little slow to react to it because the Fed won't pivot. So if you see that really extreme yield curve, we're on the precipice of it now. We're not there yet. I think the signal there is bad recession. And the market's very, very close to that right now. So, it, 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 no, hold on, Emma. Oh, no, hold on, Jim. A couple follow-up questions, if I may. Um, we, we, I'm not sure you were in the room when, when we were t- discussing this, but talking about the UK and and, and and with the UK, where the UK is going, maybe the rest of the world follows. Not literally, but invoking you know the Dennis Cartman is always never one cockroach idea. The likelihood, in your view, that we're going to see other significant problems of that ilk, um, you know, dynamite fishing. The, the whales haven't come to the surface yet, but any sense from you about the likelihood of other uh, problems similar to what we've had in the UK emerging? Yo, I think we've already got them. I think you've got them in Japan uh, with their yield curve control on the limit. I, you know, what we've had gone four days without their 10-year note, the 10-year JGB trading, because it's so out of balance, that market. The, the, the Bank of Japan holds interest rates at 25 basis points. But the 10-year swaps market is more like around 65 basis points. That's where they think the fair value is. So no one wants to touch the thing at 25 basis points. So it has gone four days without a single trade in their 10-year JGB right now. I think you're starting to see it in in the in the ECB with uh, some of the spreads. The spread between Germany and Italy is starting to widen out way beyond wherever the ECB came on with their transmission protection instrument their tpi to prevent italian spreads from widening they're much wider now than they were when they kind of threw out that tool and said that they didn't want to have them widen i think janet yellen was right there is a bad liquidity problem in the um treasury market the only pushback i'd give to janet is you're about a year and a half late it's been around for a while this bad liquidity problem so it's all there and what is the overarching thing The entire financial system, whether it's liability-driven investments in the UK or it's yield curve control in Japan or it's the liquidity in the treasury market or it's risk parity trades, to throw out another idea at you, they're all predicated on what people believe is the current environment. And they believed that the current environment was 1% to 2% inflation, 1% to 2% interest rates, low volatility, the Fed's got your back. They're going to put a lid on any problem. Anytime something wobbles, they're going to print money and they're going to make it go back to one, two percent and fall asleep. So you can play with a lot of leverage and you could play with a lot of risk. And that worked great for 15 years. Then inflation happened and it threw everything upside down. And that's why you're starting to see all these problems, because everywhere you see a problem, the assumption was we live in a. 2%, 1% world, no inflation, no volatility, and the central bank will make sure that we stay with no inflation, no volatility. So it's okay to take a lot of risk. And that's what people have done all over the place. And it worked and it worked and it worked. Then inflation came 
and it's blowing up left and right all over the place. Hey, Jim, let me ask you one follow-up question. Um, in the equity world, I'm just, I fancy myself as a dumb equity guy. Um, you know, the graph, I know you've seen this before. You're more of a, a globe-trotting macro guy. You're more uh, more well-read, diversified than I am. It, it, it's common people will show um, a chart of margin debt, and they'll compare the margin debt to the level of the market. And it's an identity um, that margin peaks and troughs with margins with, with, with the market uh, peaking and bottoming. Um, and, and, you know, this data is readily available because uh, there's a clearinghouse. OK, fine. I can't prove this, but it seems to me listening to you and reading as much as I do. I mean, the extraordinary amounts of leverage that were piled on this thing in search of just trying to generate yield there's a shortage of unearned income so they lever up lever up lever up and now it's all going wrong and you know if it was the new york stock exchange traded stuff we'd have margin debt figures we could say okay well retails puked it all you know whatever prices are down but the leverage is out of the system we we're somewhere close to a bottom blah 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 blah, blah. but as michael Howe keeps talking you know you look at the global financial system it's, it's not so much about extending new credit but it, but it's it, but it's servicing existing credit and so i guess my question to you there is a question here is when you think about how much deleveraging if any has taken place and given that the authorities can't come to the rescue because of all the inflationary pressures it just as i think about it logically it seems to me to just be a complete freaking disaster that you know if there was if we if god somehow could tell us what the amount of leverage was on, 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 on bond positions, it would still be extremely high and prices are going the wrong way. And usually the markets have a way of finding the leverage or chasing the leverage out. And so you don't have to ex respond explicitly to the question, but I think you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, I so, do. So to, so to me, it just speaks of a market, credit markets, which could decline it could be complete untold horror, which leads to your point about yield curve control eventually coming. So how do you think about, and going back, and I don't think you were in the room at the time, I was talking about, and, and again, borrowing inspired by a lot of your rants in recent weeks, considering that interest rates are nothing more than, you know, supply, it's, it's the price of money, supply and demand for money. And there aren't a lot of people who want to buy the bonds now, but there are a lot of people who are forced to sell them. And given where real rates are, I mean, before when everything was up and to the right, real rates were like negative and nobody cared. Now it's like, wait a second. And I, I do describe to the Jim Bianca view of the world that we're probably in a world of three to four percent inflation, not onesie twosie. So the real rates you're being offered are nothing to write home about. But forgetting about the real rates, you're not being you're not being bribed very much to to hold these things. And now if we just go back to simple supply and demand, forget about fair, what fair value is for bonds. Just supply and demand. I can think of a lot of people who'd want to sell these bonds down. Okay, Mike Howell's making the point that maybe, you know, for immunizing liabilities that have a higher yield, maybe there is some increased demand for bonds to immunize certain liabilities. But net net overall, I'm sorry I'm on a rant here, but you know where I'm going with this. Yep. It just strikes me that whereas we've all been surprised by how much yields have gone up. And if I talk to my technical friends, I look at John Roque, for instance, right, who's who's a friend of all of ours, a great guy. And he just, you know, he's just another Italian kid from the Bronx or whatever. And he's like, you know, when, when the yields were two, he said that they could go to three. And everyone's like, oh, how could that happen? And now he said, you know, the three, he said they'll go to four. Now the four, go to five. And, and so forget about, forget about the recency bias, the shock from the rate of change in the, in the price. Forget about that. If you came down from planet Mars 
And Jim Bianco described to you what inflation was, what growth is, what the real rate is. You'd say, that's not a very good deal. So that's on one side. Then on the other side, you say, wait a second. There are a lot of people caught wrong here with levered positions and prices going the wrong way. And I can make 4.4% for the two-year note right now. You're not giving me enough of a bribe to make me want to extend duration. I'm going to stop the rant right here. Explain to me why rates can't go a lot higher. You may say, well, that's, something's going to break. But again, you know, Jeremy Irons, please call your office margin call. You know, Mr. Bianca, I understand you know something about fixed income markets. Explain to me the same dynamic which has caused rates to go up as much as they have couldn't continue. And as much shock and disbelief as there is on a 10-year at four, why it couldn't go even higher? Floor is yours, Jim. Yeah, so a uh, couple of things. Let me start with when you were talking about who's going to buy the bonds. You had mentioned it a second ago, and I'll reiterate it. There is an old saying in the bond market that there are no bad bonds. There's only bad prices. And what that means is bonds are the senior security. Everybody forgets this. Bonds are the senior security. They will get funded. They will have funding. They are the let me put it to people this way. They are the original vampire squid. They will suck the life out of every other market if they have to to get funded. How do they do that? We'll take rates to four. Oh, not interested in bonds. I'll take them to five. I'll take them to six. I'll take them to 137% if I have to. And then I'll get Jared Dillian standing on his desk saying, buy the two-year note at that point because the yields are so high. I love Jared. I'm teasing him dumb. Um, I'm teasing him politely there uh, right now. But my point is the bond market will keep going up in yield until everybody loses interest in Tesla and says, Oh, look at that two-year note. Maybe I should buy that two-year note. So it will get funded. It will find the level that it needs to go to to get funded. Where is that level? I think it's still higher. Why do I think it's still higher? Because of what you said. I won't go through the whole thing. I think we're in a 3 to 4% inflation world, and the market has to readjust to that. And if we are in a 3 to 4% inflation world, bring it back to all that leverage. By the way, uh, George, if you want to see a chart of leverage, look at the volume numbers in the options market. It is through the roof right now, the amount of options uh, options trading that is going on. That's the ultimate leverage market, and most of that's retail right now. That's where all the DGEN, meme stock, former GameStop traders, they're all playing in options. And just one other tangent on there, what are they playing? A couple of years ago, the options exchanges started listing weekly options, options that expire every Friday. So there's another big wave of them that expire tomorrow. And then there was be another listing for them that expired the next Friday. That everybody is playing that as far as the onesie twosies retail crowd. And they're all buying out of the money lottery tickets, which is huge leverage right there, hoping that they hit the home run. So there's there is a lot of leverage. That game worked. When you were in a one one percent inflation world, one percent interest rate world with no volatility. But if this game is over and this leverage is is not this, we're leveraging in the wrong environment now because we've got inflation. Then I think a lot of that money will have to get chased out of there and they'll look for a home probably in much higher rates in the bond market uh, is where that they could go. So hopefully that kind of gives you an answer to that. But I do think that, like I said, the thing that people got to keep in mind about the bond market is it will get funded. 
if you look at the bond market and recoil and go, I wouldn't touch those things. Well, just keep taking yields higher. That means prices go down until you you will. We didn't have to do that for the last 15 years because you looked at bonds and said, who the hell buys negative interest rates in Europe? Who buys 2% or 1% yields in the United States? And the answer was the central bank with printed money. Well, the central bank is gone now because they're fighting inflation and we're in a period of tremendous disruption and change in markets, which is why we're seeing what we've been seeing this year in the markets. Yeah, Jim, can you follow up question? Could you just give a little context? Because I can't think of anyone better to answer this question. Bobby J, maybe Bobby always he says he's a credit guy, not a not a uh, not a rates guy. Uh, Jim. Uh, you've made the point on more than one occasion how the bond market um, frequently gets it wrong. And going back over the last decade, uh, post, <coughs> post GFC, the market consistently overestimated inflation and where rates would go to. And you're making the, the opposite argument this time. And, 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 and But more importantly, could you just give a little context to how just because the bond market says this and forward expectations are that, and the tips yield is this, and you've made the point how I think the U.S. government's gone from four percent to twenty-seven percent ownership of the tips market. That the the the, the, the this the, 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 these prices were not handed down on Mount Sinai, guaranteed to be the right number, and these right. are subject to change of that notice. And therefore, when people say, "Well, you know, inflation expectations are actually reasonably anchored; they're only two percent or whatever," like so what? That's some knucklehead Yahoo who hasn't getting who's not getting Bianca research. And I got a sneaky suspicion his opinion is going to change in the coming months and years. So could you just talk about how often the bond market gets things wrong? Yeah. And the first part you said, yes, that 20, I'll, I'll say this in two sentences. 2020 was a demarcation line. Prior to that, we had the low stable inflation. Everybody was a little bit worried there'd be an uptick in inflation. They constantly overestimated inflation. Since 2020, I think we've gotten a sea change in the economy that has produced more inflation. And they keep thinking inflation will settle down and they keep underestimating inflation ever since. But what you're talking about is in the bond market, you can construct these forward curves to give somebody an example of what a forward curve is. The simple example. I know what the two year note yield is. And uh, as I look at my screen here, the two year note yield is 446. And I know what the one year note yield is. Uh, The the one year note yield is uh, 375. So I know I get 375 now. I know that in two years I can get an average, an average of 446. What rate do I need in one year for one year in order to make that plug figure fit? That's the forward curve. That is the market telling you what it thinks the rate will be for one year money in one year. You could do it for three month money in five years. You could just keep going endlessly looking at what we call forward curves. And people look at these and you can look at the futures market, the Fed fund futures market. Where's the April 2023 Fed fund futures trading? That's a form of a forward curve. And it tells you what the yield is. And that yield is 487 right now. So it's telling you uh, between four and three quarters and five is where the funds rate will be by April of next year. I've often said that is useful to know. Because the market will price, because that's what the market is pricing in. That is the market's opinion. That is a useful thing to know. But as you just said, do not confuse that with, so therefore it will happen. Often the time with these forward curves, whatever they price in won't happen. 
I'll remind everybody, a year ago, April, October 21st of last year, I just looked this up yesterday. So we're very close to one year ago. The forward curve said that the Fed would raise rates two times in 22. Once in June by 25 basis points, once in December by 25 basis points. That's what the forward curve said one year ago. How's that looking right now? Of course, it was way off is what it is. But it was still useful to know because that's what the market was pricing in. So all the forward curve gives you is half the equation. What's the market think? Then you have to go the next step. What do I think is actually going to happen? And sometimes, or a lot of times, what I think what actually does happen, I should say it that way, is not the same thing as what the forward curve prices in. So if someone was was a summa Kalani graduate paid up subscriber the Jim Bianco research, which by the way, I urge everyone to, to take a free try for. I, I'm happy. I I'm a, I'm a subscriber, Jim, just just so and it's really good stuff. So if 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 one believes that Jim is half right or wholly right and you know inflation is going to be three Z, four Zs, not one Z, two Zs, and that thinking starts to permeate asset markets more generally, not just fixed income, but equities as well. Uh, explain to me why like that might cause a problem for equities. Explain why it wouldn't cause a problem for equities. Well, the, the, the equity market is, first of all, the equity market has been enjoying no competition from the bond market until this year, right? Because the bond market was at 1% and the, the central bank was buying it. And why would I even even think about the thing? Because, you know, I could I could buy stocks with higher dividend yields than I can get with uh, treasury yields. Uh, but that's not the case anymore. So now, all of a sudden, as we go forward, the bond market is going to start getting more competition to the stock market. And you could see that if you ask any any ETF shop or any mutual fund shop, what funds are getting the biggest inflows right now? Oh, they're short-term bond funds because people are looking at 4% yields, almost no price risk. You know, sign me up. Sign me up. I'll take that. Um, I'll take that all day long. And they're starting huge money is going into into that into that kind of sector right there. A little bit less so into money markets because they're much they're much lower yield, but they're still like 2.8 to 3 3% or so. So that's the first thing is that the bond market is starting to give the stock market competition that it's never had. The second thing is when you do a valuation, and this gets probably more into your wheelhouse, George, when you do a valuation on the market, you need to have some kind of a discount rate, a rate at which what is future money, how do I net present value future money back to today's value? If I'm looking at a growth stock and I, and I see that you know there's some archetype stock that has no profits today, but you think that in five years or eight years, it might be making billions of dollars of revenue. Well, what's that billions of dollars of revenue worth in today? Uh, and as interest rates go up and the discount rate gets higher, the, that revenue out in the future becomes worth less and less and less today, which explains why the, the NASDAQ, the long duration stocks are doing so much worse than the rest of the stock market because most of the S&P 500 are profitable companies that are making money today and will make money in the future. But a lot of their money that they're making is now. It's not a hope in the future. 
So when you discount them back, they don't get hurt as much as the companies that have no revenues now and maybe will have them in the future. Hope that hope hey, that Jim, isn't too technical. No, Jim, that's a wonderful tour de force. Um, I want to, Tommy Thornton's been patient. What he, uh, Tommy, you had a follow up, and then I want to go to uh, Chad. Tommy. So this uh, space has really has turned into something uh, very educational, and I just want to thank uh, Jim and uh, Michael, uh, Emma as well, and others that have uh, spoken. I, I just want to say every time I'm on this, I learn a little bit more, and some of the uh, strategist stuff and is just incredible. And Jim is like a encyclopedia that you can just like, he's like Wikipedia of economic uh, data going back years and it's it really is amazing um, so the thing that um, just going back to the equity markets we just haven't seen a, uh, a capitulation and I just want people to think that what would it take for a capitulation and I'm usually thinking back when I was very young and really stupid and I worked at Drexel as an intern in Beverly Hills, California, when the 1987 crash happened. And it was the bond market that really started to unravel. And I think that what Jim and Michael and others have, have talked about is the bond market this has really held things together. And then it was just people sold anything that wasn't tied down uh, because they needed liquidity in any way. So I think that just going back to one other thing that I mentioned earlier, and I got to go because my wife and daughters um, are at dinner and they're like, are you coming? And yeah, maybe. Um, but the spaces is really important, I think. Um, the problem I see is that the bond market really holds the key to capitulation. And that will be when the retail people start to come fall in line and say, wow, this is really dangerous. As far as, um, you know, Jill, Jared uh, bailed on us earlier, and I, I'm not quite sure why, but I tend to think that he's writing his note tomorrow saying everybody's bearish and we should be bullish. I get that. I get it. I get it. I get it. Uh, but I think the it's a little too early to signal the all clear, maybe a bounce. That's fine. But we've got earnings. We've got a lot of stuff. We've got elections coming. I just think there's so many catalysts. And um, I spoke to someone today who works for um, a guy that may or may not be well-known, a macro guy that started a foundation and had a conference. But he basically is saying that follow the 1974 playbook. You can kind of read into that, everyone, but I think that's where we are. The macro theme is going to be around for a long time. And my friend who I spoke to said he's he thought, oh, I'm going to retire. And he's, you know, fabulously wealthy and could do whatever he wants in his life. But he waited for this time in his life. He told me this today. He said, I've waited my entire career for a macro world that we have right now. And I think that was really like, I mean, this guy is brilliant, but we have a macro world that is going to last for a while. He's not retiring. And, uh, 
he's he's fantastic so i just want to say um thank you to jim michael everyone else emma and of course you george um you are the master of ceremonies you haven't yelled at anybody uh thank you and um so i will kind of go there i'm done thanks Th tommy Th th thanks, Tommy. Always welcome. All right, let's move on quickly here. I want to go to uh, Bobby Salvatore, and then we're going to go to TB. Bobby, please unmute yourself. Oh, wow. Thank you. I can't believe how many amazing speakers are in here. It just kind of blows my mind, man. Just kind of just walked into this. I really hope this is recorded so we can uh, listen to it later. There's too much info to take in. But this is really to um, Mike Howe, Cantrell. There's so many people in here. Bianco. Uh, how mentioned earlier that he thinks we see a rally in the gills. Um, and so with that being said, I, I'm wondering how does he think that will happen? And the United States U.S. treasuries don't, don't catch a bid. That's, that's my first question. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Bobby, let me just address that. Um, being bullish on UK gills was not his central forecast. He happened to mention he thought they would go up, but, I would not build a house or build an argument no. based on that observation. That was no. just sort of a side comment. But go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Second question, real quick. Thank you. Um, he he also uh, so Bianco just mentioned that he doesn't think we see another substantial blow up. He thinks we're already there. Uh, he, you know, referencing uh, Japan, and um, you know, I, I I just feel as though how is it possible that only the pension system in and the UK has 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 blown up in, in such a in such a large uh, media centric way, and, and and we don't see this from other uh, sovereigns and countries. Around yeah, the yeah, world. yeah. But Bobby, thanks for the question. I think we already answered that. Um, I asked the question: Is there ever ever just one cockroach? And the answer is no. Um, you're seeing it elsewhere. Um, I, I think uh, Jim's answer was: Yeah, you're going to see a lot more of this. We, the names aren't important. Dynamite fishing, uh, the fish will float to the surface. So, no, you're, you're, you're spot on with that question. Thanks for the question. I want to go to Mark Newman now. Mark Newman, the floor is yours. Hey, guys. Hey, George. What's going on? Uh, so, a couple things. I wanted to, earlier in the convo, a little bit earlier, fairly bit earlier, uh, there was some short-term wonders about what's going on. I want to point out three bullish engulfing candles. This is when the market opens below the yesterday's level and closes above yesterday's high. Sorry. Closes below, opens below the low, closes above the high. That occurred today in the XLF, the XLI, and the spiders. The interesting thing is it engulfed, the XLF and XLI engulfed four days worth of trading. And the spiders engulfed three days worth of trading. And volumes were up massively. The XLF moved 7% from the low to the high. So now you have trapped shorts. Big time. Okay? So... Also, today's short index, Goldman Sachs, only up 136 bips. That lagged everything by 100, 150 bips. So shorts did not cover today. So my, my thought is any pullback tomorrow, next day, you're probably getting short cover. So these bullish engulfing candles are serious for the short-term traders. Now, people might ask, where's the target? Where's it going? I point to Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft. The trade action on October 10, uh, 4. To October 6th, this was what I call island reversal. In Japanese candlesticks, it's the abandoned baby. This was an island pattern that then traded, gapped up, traded across, and gapped down. 
My targets on the upside for Amazon would be 120, Apple 145, Microsoft 247. So I kind of think we can go there, especially since there was no real short cover today. Not that those names I mentioned are going to see short cover, but uh, I think it's worth keeping an eye on. Now, at the beginning of this call, people were talking about a bottom. Let me explain to you why we're not at a bottom. First of all, Ross Gerber is still tweeting like a, ma a maniac. So that's one. Number two, Kathy Wood is still alive and well. That's another. Um, I would say Apple, only down 19% year to date. The Qs are down 33 and the Spoos are down 23. In 52 weeks, Apple's practically unchanged. The Qs are down 25% and the Spoos are down 16. So until Apple gets closer to those numbers, we are not at a bottom. Also, EPS, 200 seems to be a number that all the street clowns are talking about. Well, I like listening to guys like Belkin, and they're talking 150, 175, whatever. The street is way too high on those things. Also, does the S&P bottom at 17 and a half? I do not think so. So we had years of QE, free money, all that stuff. It doesn't take one year just to clean it out. So I would say, like, look, I don't know where the next five, six days go. I don't. Uh, but I know that there are some private equity guys talking that – there are colleagues and friends of theirs that are not trading anything down here in the private equity world because they don't want to mark down stuff that they have on the books that hasn't traded. So we know that the equity market has done a fair bit of repricing. You know, a lot of names down a lot. But the private equity world has not realized their, their numbers yet. And we are heading into year end. Now, I don't think there's a lot of tax loss selling to offset a ton of gains, but I think there's clearly a chance that People want to get crap off their sheets. And then the last thing I'll leave everyone with is like the XLU had been a good place to hide. It just got smoked in the last month. So when the when they raid the house of ill repute, the piano player goes to jail. And that was the XLU to me. XLE, energy still up on the year. So I think there's more house cleaning to come. I think things all have to go down a bit. I think we need to see, I'm sorry, at the end of this, we need people to say, I hate stocks. I'm never touching them again. And we're not there yet. So I think there's going to be an interesting little October here. I think the final quarter of the year is going to be very volatile. And I'll leave everyone with this. A couple of weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, we talked. I mentioned Japan as the real uh, canary in the coal mine. I think the UK was just an, was just an appetizer. I think, the, I think Japan is going to be the come-to-Jesus moment for this entire, entire shebang. And that's what I got for y'all. Thanks, Mark. Always love to hear from you. Okay, with with I know he's been really patient. He got bumped out, whatever. But now the other Ken is back. Ken, Ken, Spital Ken, Spittle Ken. The floor is yours. Yeah, Welcome. thank you. Please. So great to hear from all of you. I love the uh, diverse opinions. So the way I kind of was looking at it is liquidity, and you know the Fed created so much liquidity. Jeremy Grantham pointed out it's a super bubble and. You know, the earnings reports coming up are not going to be good. And right now, when you look at the demographics of the world, except for India and Mexico, everyone's old and there's not a lot of workers to support. So my theory and I'm looking for people to shoot holes in it. So it is kind of a question. But my theory is the Fed needs people to be in pain to get them to stop spending money and to get them to go back to work. And to work harder, be more efficient. If we do that, if we create pain in the stock market, 
it keeps boomers who understand and know because they have experience in the market. And it also keeps the young people hungry if they really are seeing friends lose jobs and lose houses. So I think there's a need for some unemployment. I think there's a need to curtail spending so we're not just hemorrhaging more money because the debt GDP to debt ratio of most countries, in particular ours, is just way out of whack. But that's not from consumer spending. That's not what drives that, right? Say that again. I didn't hear you clearly. So our our debt to GDP is not driven by the level of consumer spending. It's still that's driven by the level of government. Right, spending. but I mean, there's still there's still the government is not going to be pumping more liquidity into the system so that people aren't going to be saved from their poor investment habits. Because I've seen so yeah, many garbage stocks yep. get pumped. Yeah. Oh yeah, they definitely want to wipe all that out, I would think. I, I actually can, I, I've said this before in these spaces, I actually think um, incinerating, blowing up a lot of this malinvestment, rather than being a problem, that's the solution. Um, yeah. You know, had, to, sorry, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. Well, go ahead. Uh, I just, just to echo, yeah, until you have creative destruction and allow that, I, I agree with, um, was it Einhorn, that value remains as an investment strategy. Pretty, yeah. pretty so risky. And it, pretty it, it's a part, part of the problem is that a complete misallocation of resources, people investing in food delivery services, dating apps, electric cars, all this bullshit, okay, instead of putting into extractive industries and energy and, 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 and whatnot. So I actually think destroying this capital, marking it to market where it belongs to be, is a good thing. It's part of the healing process, not a bad thing. We just can't continue the road that we've been on. All right. Thanks for that, Ken. Let's go to uh, let's go now to um, TB. TB, you've been waiting. The floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Hey, George. Uh, I, thank hey, George, you I was for say, uh, run. Sorry for interrupting. Thanks everybody. Thanks, George, Jim, and Cantrell. Uh, always, always a pleasure. Thanks, always Cantrell. Stay safe. Be good. Have a, have a great night. Go for it. TB, yeah, floor is so, yours. Go for it. Yeah. So thanks again for for democratizing kind of the institutional research to so many people out here. I, I they, you know, for the average person, they have no idea what they're getting here. So thank you for that. Um, just, you know, a, a question for you, you know, clearly the, the, the fundamental picture is, is clear cut. The macro, you know, is completely obvious. So this question is more about between now and year end. If let, let's say you're a long only manager or you're a private wealth manager and, and you have massive alpha right now be, because you've been positioned properly and or you've had flow come into you and you just didn't want to put the money to work. You're sitting here. It's October. You have this huge spread and you're sitting there going, do I press my bet and risk losing some of my spread? And then two, how am I going to be positioned going into new year? And so I just want to know if you have any thought around, could that also be a dynamic in some of these short-term moves Say, for example, like today, when you didn't get the confirmation in the bond market, you didn't get it confirmed in the gold market, um, you know, and it was an equity run. And, and so is there a dynamic potentially at play? And, you know, I don't follow, you know, flows or any of that stuff. So I just I throw that out there as a question. Yeah. All right. So so TV, again, I, there's always a, a, a desire to try to ascribe meaning to daily movements. 
naturally is a fool, really a fool's errand. Okay. I think Jared Gillian and others, Jared had it and unfortunately left after 45 minutes. I don't know if the app blew up on Ram or scared him away, one or the other. But but at any, at any rate. Um, hey. I didn't scare him. <laughs> I know. I know your bark is worse than your bite. I'm not. I'm not scared of you. Ever. Don't worry about it. So anyway, um, today I think was probably about positioning and everyone was short and people out of puts, all this sort of nonsense. But to the bigger question between now and year end, because I think the, the further out you look, the more the higher your batting average. Trying to figure out what's going on. I think flows are definitely going to be a feature between now and year end. Um, in a normal year, when you've had a healthy market. There's a sort of inside baseball tendency amongst professional money managers that if you buy the new highs list in early October, um, people kind of crowd into those stocks, and that group tends to do well for the rest of the year. You may get that with energy this time around, especially if there are any conspiracy theorists in the crowd who think that, you know, once the election's out of the way, the SPR releases will diminish, that a lot of this is being done as a political maneuver. So I could see crowding and energy being a feature uh, between now and the end of the year. But as for, 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 for every the entire rest of the stock market, no. Um, and I think, I think to the contrary, I mean, you're going to get selling. You're going to get redemptions. I don't know if I want to call it tax law selling because I don't know how many gains people have to offset. But, um, you know, and what's interesting, too, is to keep in mind, we're now seasonally into the strongest time of the year. You know, it's, it's selling man, sell man, go away. You buy the market, you know. In October, November, one, whatever, and you're usually good until May. But that, those are just averages. We got to talk to the specifics of, of, the, of, of, we need context. And as Jim Bianco's been pointing out, you know, my God, look what's happening to interest rates and liquidity. And so, just relying on averages per se is of is of little is is of little help. But I would say, um, to the general funds flow question between now and the end of the year, especially as retail has hardly sold anything. I believe that in the absence of a big rally, um, the pressure is going to mount. Yeah. They're going to sell. So, I, I, so when I look at the balance sheet of the market, what could go right, what could go wrong, I put the flow side on the negative side of the ledger. And I also think on the hedge fund world, I think you're going to get a lot of redemptions. Uh, and you know, that's that's you're going to get you're going to get redemptions in hedge funds. You get a lot of mark to mark, you know, away from mark to myth to something. Uh, more realistic on a lot of the privates and all that kind of stuff. And that's just going to cause a liquidity dynamic to for the news to tighten further. So you ask a good question. My own, I mean, someone may have a different opinion, but my own opinion is it's a decided negative between now and the end of the year. I hope that helps DB. Yeah. And, and the second question real quick, and um, with, with so much money going into money markets and repos being in there, and I know there's been massive money market reform. If you're kind of, case plays out or or bianco's case plays out is that something we have to be watching kind of the repo stuff at all i'm gonna let bianco have that one because this is this is like there are people far more intelligent or experienced than i am in this area and to me i, I don't know I, I don't spend a lot of time on it. jim is there any, anything behind that question if you're still listening jim yeah i i would answer the question the way i've always answered these questions generically the bond market is too opaque and too big and too complicated for any one human being to really get their head around it, even if you're Jamie Dimon. All I could say is, given what we know about liquidity, given the levels of volatility that we've seen in the bond market, and given the total return losses, you know, I always tweet out that chart of the total return losses year to date, which are at a record. 
it is an, a fair assumption to say that there is a lot of stress everywhere in the market. What particularly is going to boil over and blow up like British pensions? I can't tell you what's going to go next. I can just tell you that there's a lot of people under a lot of stress and there's a lot of there's a lot of losses and there's a lot of pressure and it won't take much for another body to float to the surface. Or as George, as you said, there's not just one cockroach. Exactly. Thank you, TV. Great question. Thanks. God bless. All right. So we're going I want to go quickly now because this room's going on two and a half hours. Everyone keeps telling me to keep these rooms short, but you guys are just full of so interesting questions. It's really, really special. And to have folks like Jim and, and, and Bobby J and, and, and Cantro in the room, it just really, really makes it special. Um, all right, so let's go to Chad. Chad, floor is yours. Hey, guys, thanks for uh, picking me up and uh, great call so far. Also, George, uh, can I poach the uh, Mark the Myth quote from you? <laughs> I like that. Um, so my, my first question is, this is geared more towards Cantro or anyone else who wants to um, answer it on the equity strategy bend is that you know, assuming that earnings are going to be bad is there a scenario that's feasible where uh, in nominal terms earnings are not so terrible you'll real terms they're pretty bad and the market sort of focuses on the the nominal number that gives it another uh, boost to this earnings season and then uh you know, my second question is and this was uh you know, jim was speaking to this also, another gentleman who uh, talked about uh, bonds as a vampire. Maybe that was Jim, but somebody else was was referring to the capital structure status and just how, you know, inevitably, like the higher yields go, it's going to eventually suck the life out of everything else. Um, what does anyone have, an, like, just from a bull's perspective here? Like, why would you want to go buy tech if you could go buy TLT or something on the longer end of the curve that could be up just as much if you need two percent? inflation to make either one work and be you know, obviously um, in a much more senior position. So those are my, my questions. I'll stop there. Let you guys answer. Yeah. So, so Chad, the second one, I'm not going to take as a, as a question, I'm going to take that as a truth. We hold to be self-evident point duly noted. Uh, and, and what was the first, what was the, what was the question? What was the first question again, please? The, the first question was referring to earnings, uh, but in nominal terms. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we haven't had to think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, people have mentioned that. Um, I think, though, implicit in that is, yeah. Let me, maybe well, let me ask you, George, let me ask it another way to make it a little bit easier. Is that, I mean, is there, is it, is it possible that that's going to be a narrative that uh, the Bulls can run with and try to you know, form this into a real rally, this bounce that we had today, or whatever this was today? It was um, somewhat painful and amazing at the same time, but. Yeah, no, I, I, Chad, it's a fair point. I think, you know, consistent with that, though, it's not just, yeah, revenue, the top line's okay because inflation is high and we live in a nominal world, but so, so isn't the cost side. And I think you're seeing, and he left now, but Jeff Garbaz, I think, coined the phrase, you're seeing a lot of companies get FedExed, you know, Nike, CarMax, FedEx, whatever. So I think even more important than the top line is, um, the bottom line, and as Jim Walker said in this room many a time, um, you know, in a lot of cases, companies just have no idea if they're making any money. I mean, they're jacking prices, they're taking prices as much as they can. And we've seen every day we see more companies kind of take price, which just makes the Fed's job that much more difficult. So I hear where you're coming from, but I think even more interesting than the impact of inflation on the top line 
is the impact of inflation and rising costs on the bottom line. And net net, I think it's for most companies, it's causing margin problems. So, but I hear it's it's an excellent question. Yeah. Certainly bears certainly bears watching. Thanks for that. I, I, I'm in, I'm in that camp as well, and it, I just my wheels started turning today when I watched the market. Sure. Did thought, sure. You know, is this going to be another narrative? Yeah, that's it. No, Thank appreciate you. that, champ. Okay, I want to go quickly because I do want to. I do want to uh, um, um, bring this room to a close. We're going to go to AELB and then we're going to do Hedge Reaper. AELB, floor is yours. Yes, sure. It's terrific, special usual. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I just want to ask this question because I mean, I just wonder why isn't anybody? I mean, I, I go to many spaces now and. I don't hear anybody talking about the U.S. deficit. In 2021, we had a 2.7 trillion deficit. To, uh, to 2022, we have a close to 1 trillion deficit. So the fiscal deficit is dropping by 1.7 trillion. That's basically 1.7 trillion less income that is going to the economy. So, I mean, any, anybody who's bullish on earners is, I mean, this, this is just beyond me. Yeah. I, I have a... I have a hard time understanding how nobody is taking this into consideration. AALB, AALB, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question real simple. That's because you and I are probably, I'm going to say, maybe the only two people in this room that read GAFCAL, all right? And so they just don't understand the identity that the public sector deficit's equal to the, sorry, the public sector deficit's the private sector surplus. So 100% right. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. Anything else you want to say about that? Yes, my second question on a less serious note is: I'm wondering if I should watch your interview with Jack today or tomorrow. Should I pop popcorn tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought it was an okay interview, but but we'll we'll, we'll see. Actually, you know what was funny at the end of it? I go, "How did I do?" He goes, "Yeah, it was pretty good." He goes, "I wish you were more fired up, though." And and so I don't know. I, I guess I guess I, I uh, maybe I need to drink some more before I do the interview. Hey, anyway, don't, don't worry, I haven't lost my fastball. Hey, uh, ALB, thank, ALB, thanks thank you, for that. Let's keep moving here. Uh, we're going to do Hedge Reaper and then Average Joe. Hedge Reaper, please unmute yourself. Hey, George. How are you tonight? Always always a great uh, space call, buddy. We're good. But, go, go for it, man. Go uh, for it. Okay. Um, you know, no disrespect to any of you in here. You are brilliant with numbers, and that's all you see every day. If you only see what was happening behind the scenes, of why this market is the way it is. We've been talking about this for about a year, and we knew exactly what was going to happen to this day. And it all went the same way. If you just open your eyes a little further and see the corruption that's happening behind the scenes with the government, with everybody, if you see that, you'll understand how the market's working. And to uh, Jim, you're a brilliant person, bro. But when it comes to the, you guys call meme stocks, nobody's leaving. And, and you got to realize that. Like to everybody that's listening, nobody's leaving. That's the problem that, that right, a lot right, of people. Right, right, right. So, so Edge Reaper, that's exactly the problem. They're not leaving. And it's really sad because in these rooms, we said months ago, folks are going to get an education the only question is, is it going to be expensive education and a or inexpensive education? And unfortunately, they didn't listen, and they're getting they're getting what they wanted. So, not much more to say. And as and frankly, as the liquidity uh, bathtub drains out, I expect um, you know these guys are going to continue to get murdered. So, um, thanks for your hey, thanks. Hey for George, that. can, can yeah, I go, go ahead, Jay? Go for it, Jim. Go. Yep. Just a real quick comment. I'm going to channel Mike Green here. Um, People have not left the market. 
look, there's still inflows into ARC because there's some hope there. But what could dash that hope is if you give them high enough interest rates, they might then turn and say, the hell with the market. I'll just take the interest rates. I'm tired of the losses. And that it and it gets back to my comment earlier that the interest rate mark, if interest rates go high enough, they'll just suck the life out of them out of the market. And that's what Mike Green has expressed to me is his biggest concern is the next shoe to drop is when you get much higher rates, people are just I've had enough of this. I'll take four and a half or five or whatever the big number is and sleep at night because I'm actually getting something without the risk of a loss. So it might be the interest rate market that does it. That's all. Hey, hey Jim, can I ask you a question? As long as you mentioned Mike's name, why has Mike been fighting you on interest rates the whole way up? I mean, he's been completely wrong on interest rates. <clears throat> uh, yeah, Mike, Mike is of, of the view that the he is – look, he's very straightforward and he's very open. And he thinks that the inflation is not – is one to two in a couple of years, and it's not three to four. And it, if he's right and inflation does – Go to one to two. And let me be clear when I say one to two, I mean secularly one to two. Sure, we might print a low two or one handle on inflation if we had a recession and crapped out the economy. But then the minute the economy recovered, I think it goes back to three. He thinks it goes to one to two and stays there. If that's what happens, I think his thesis will play out. I have a different thesis than him. But he's been very clear on that. and He's been very open on that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Now, listen, Mike's a friend, but, you know, we can all agree to disagree. And he's, he's gotten a lot of things right. That one he's gotten spectacularly wrong. So, um, anyway, let, let, let's move on. Uh, let's go to Marcus. Okay, I got to go, George. Thank you Thanks. so much. I love your space calls. Thank Thanks. you. Appreciate it. Appreciate that. Let's go to Marcus. Marcus, the floor is yours. What's up? Marcus, please unmute yourself, Marcus. I guess he's not there. Um, let's go to Rob. Hey, Rob. Hey, how you doing, George? Um, so, uh, given the late hour, uh, I'll try to cut what I was going to say in half and maybe stoke a, a little bit of end conversation here. Uh, so, 2022, to me, has been about one primary theme. There's been a downtrend in stocks, and the bond market has followed it since January 4th. And until that ends, you know, other than these short-term wiggles and, and violent wiggles they are, uh, I don't think that that much is changing. Uh, you know, I try to look like everybody else does at, okay, what's going on? But then the other thing is, and this is from, you know, formerly sitting in the advisor chair for 27 years um, and now being a research guy, uh, you know, what do you do about it? And I think for a lot of retail investors and frankly, the advisors that advise them, my old brethren, uh, it comes down to a very simple concept. This is a time where you need to shrink the range of possible outcomes in your portfolio. And I think what a lot of people tend to do in the dip buyers and the whole thing is say, hey, you know what? I can make 30 percent in the next couple of months on when the market bottoms. Well, they don't look at it in reverse. Uh, and this is a time where I mean, I know in our portfolios, you know, we're not allowing it to move a whole lot either way until there is a real sustained trend and, you know, wake me up when there is one. Um, one other thing about the retail and retail financial advisor mindset, uh, you know, I continue to kind of traffic in that in that group, just uh, contacts, et cetera. Uh, there is no urgency still, still 
And I wonder if this is just going to come down to that old uh, adage uh, that some of us uh, older timers uh, remember. You know, when people start opening up their monthly statements and they see uh, how much they're down, especially in the bond portfolio, that's going to be a problem. Uh, the other quick stat here, uh, the 60-40 total return, total return of a 60-40 uh, index is the iShares index. Uh, AOR is the ETF symbol. I'm not promoting it. Uh, in the last five years, that 60-40 tracker is up 12%, cumulative, cumulative in five years. And at some point, it's going to catch up with people. Um, lastly, Jim Bianco, uh, as usual, uh, has it, I think, spot on. Um, people don't understand the bond market. Uh, professionals do. Retail doesn't. And what uh, this is another episode where they, you know, first they won't understand it and then they won't be curious enough about it. It makes them surprised and then they're panicked and then ultimately they're horrified. And that's when you get the I'm never investing in stocks again. Last point. Um, anybody who remembers uh, Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, the uh, the 2000 year old man. OK, uh, uh, if not, look up. There's something bigger than Phil. Okay, it was kind of a punchline in that thing. And here's the bottom line. For a lot of people, there is no serious recognition. That's the problem. We have a recognition problem going on here of the end investor. And frankly, I worry for my generation. I'm last year, the baby boomers born in 64. Um, and the something bigger than Phil, I think Jim Bianco nailed it a few minutes ago. It's the bond market and what can happen to the bond market that can cause dislocations and illiquidity. Hundred percent. Thanks. For that. Thanks for that, Rob. Appreciate it. Oh, look who look who just the cat who just walked in. Mr. Brigden. Julian Brigden. The man of the era, the man who's nailed this thing. So Julian, could you grace us with your updated views? You've been so spot on. You've become a crowd favorite. So have at it. The floor is yours. So uh, just just two two observations. Um, I think Jim and I are sort of two brothers from a different mother at the moment. Um, but I would make a couple of observations. The, f the first one is when we peace, 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 people on this call, I would guarantee that 99.9% .9 of you will look at um, U.S. Treasuries for the bond market. The U.S. Treasury market has arguably been kind of cheap for, you know, 50 basis points. The issue is not necessarily what is going on in the U.S. Treasury market. It's what's going on outside the U.S. Treasury market. Um, you know, if you look at uh, continental Europe and you look at Japan, these countries have, through their policies, suppressed our bond yields. Those policies are being challenged um, aggressively now by events. I mean, in continental Europe, you've got double-digit inflation. You've got 30-year bonds with 3% 3, 3 handles, 2% handles. That is very unsustainable. Um, something is going to break there. And if those flows continue, if the sell-off continues in those bond markets, um, and we're at some, I'm not suggesting, you know, we're at levels where you should get some sort of pullback. But if you go, you know, for example, in Japanese 30-year yields, if you look at a log chart of Japanese 30-year yields, if you start to break above 155, and I think we got to 148, 149, you're in another 100 basis point plus range. And just like the gills market when it went above 375, um, that has a profound, profound impact on our bond markets because all of these markets are interchangeable or to use a technical term, fungible. Um, and the damage that is being done by the re-rating 
of global risk assets, the denominator of all leverage across all portfolios is enormous and must not be understated. The second thing I would say is, and it was the Mike Green comment that sort of um, brought it to four. We don't know for definite whether this cycle of inflation is just a peak, which will be driven to new lows, or whether it is actually the beginning of a new trend. Um, I have a suspicion that I think it is. I actually had to do a presentation today on the end of the great moderation and why I think there are, is an intense chance that we're going back to the 60s and 70s with boom-bust economics, stop-go monetary policy, and so much volatility, it is going to kill people. But I could be wrong if, indeed, we have a Fed that is resolved enough that they are prepared to leverage on pain to us now as a market and an economy. I'm suspicious. I think they're prepared to take some, but I don't think the challenge has really started to lie to to really uh, come to the fore. I think it will happen next year, and it isn't clear. And I'm suspicious, right? Because they're not doing what Volcker did. What Volcker did was he took interest rates above inflation. This law is kind of hoping that they get some sort of Hail Mary kind of scenario where they can just make them a little tight, just a little painful, and somehow gravity will do the rest. Well, it worked in the 90s for Greenspan, but it worked with inflation rates that were significantly lower. But the thing that, as I said, George, that really concerns me um, is that you've got a, very, a large number of people who just... I'm afraid, don't even seem willing to the, consider the point based upon hundreds of years worth of history that the world goes through periods of intense inflationary cycles and they can last a decade plus. It's typically what they do last. And the damage that can be done to portfolios in that period by assuming that we're just going to revert to the normal long-term historical trend, which is disinflationary, cannot be understated. Julian, those are excellent points. And I would just add on, and I don't want to make this a political thing because we try to keep politics from, and, and, and both administrations, both sides are out. Nobody wants to suffer any pain, all right? There's no pain. And they're trying to like, you know, they're, they're trying to thread the needle with this sort of softish, uh, uh, you, know, you know, landing. You can either have your recession, let's lose some jobs, let's free up some slack in the labor force, let's get on with it, or you kind of want to cheat, if you will, fake it till you make it, which is what they're doing, and you're just, and the inflation genie's not going to get put back in the bottle. And they just, they just, you know, it's, it's that way with interest rate policy, it's that way with the goddamn SPR which, you know, you look at the way they've drained that freaking thing. I promise you, once the election's out of the way, they'll stop draining it. I mean, it's, it's just bloody awful. I think that's the right use of the word. Um, and so, but, but you can't fool the market. But the market's coming for them. The market's coming for them. And they, they can run, but they can't hide. And so all these irresponsible policies are now, are, are the, the, the due bill's now coming for them. And, um, you know, capital goes where it's treated best and, and money's going home. So we're getting price discovery. And this is not just... Something that's the result of, you know, a year of malfeasance. This has been, you know, a decade in the making, if not longer. And so I'm afraid that uh, we're inexorably 
headed for a big reset, but that's a, that's a conversation for another room. Thank you for that, Julian. A couple more, and then we're going we're gonna to shut this down. Um, I want to go to uh, Uber Trading and then Average Show. Uber Trading? Hey, hey guys. Firstly, thank you very much for this amazing space. Uh, Jim, George, people should just listen to this space and not do an MBA. Uh, my question is very simple. <clears throat> you know, who, who woke up this morning? Was it hedge funds, pension funds, algos, and said, well, after the CPI report, we want to buy equities? Like, I, I just don't understand who is buying the, buying the equities right now. Well, you can say it's positioning. I'm hearing that argument, and that makes sense. But, like, why would that have a follow-through then in the next week or so? so yeah. That's just my question. Yeah, Uber trading. I mean, trying to get these short – listen, trying to get the intermediate term is hard enough, right is hard enough. Trying to get the minutia, we, we really try not to get into the day-to-day minutia in these rooms. It's just next to impossible. But for those on the post-game show that try to micro-analyze this and look at the instant replay, you know, of course, they didn't explain this to you. This was the risk ahead of time. But – the the, the, the 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 narrative the jour is you know there were a lot of option strategies people took off puts sell puts basically force the dealers to buy longs a lot of guys were short yada 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 once that starts going you start getting the uh, some of the CTAs momentum strategies kicking in yeah blah 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 I mean listen the people who are running with these stories they may be right but no one was calling this ahead of time so I don't put a whole lot of credence in it even if it's right it, there's no the market has no institutional memory from one day to the next. And so what's true today is probably a good chance to be irrelevant tomorrow. Thanks for the question. I'm going to do Average Joe and then Emma. Average Joe? Hey, thanks for taking my call. I don't know what happened today. I mean, as the Average Joe, I'm looking for some relief. You know, I CPI does affect us, you know, gas, food, and, you know, this talk about retail uh, investors are still out there strong. You know, you look at Robinhood, we've been told for months that they have been losing um, the, the average person to invest back into Robinhood. You know, you see all the signs of, okay, the market is finally going to crash and we can get some relief and we're going to get some control of inflation. And, you know, the number comes out and the market just takes off for, and you know, lately, close. you have a question, please. Cause we've, yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering today was kind of, what do you think oil was up? Banks were up and also tech. I mean, the whole market had, in general was up. Yeah. Joe, Joe, I, do Joe, you know why that was the case? Just chalk it up to a newness. Yeah. So it's average, Joe, nobody really knows. I, we, we've talked about that quite a bit in the last hour. So um, I, I, I really don't, I really want to get away from that question. Always glad to hear from you, but please come back to the next room. That, that question, I just don't think it's, it's we've, we've, we've addressed it. And, and, and I don't think it's really that helpful to go further into it. All right. A couple more. And when I do this, so we're going to go to uh, Javier, no, Emma, Javier, and then Jack Farley. Emma. I'm all good. Javier. Javier, floor is yours. What's up, Javier? I, I, I don't have much to say today, but I heard Average Joe's question and I, and I heard it asked before, George, and, and you know, I got asked this question today and, and I'm a pretty simple guy, you know, Julian and, and, and Bobby J and, and, and Jim, they're, they're so much smarter than I'll ever be. But I likened it in a conversation with, with some people that asked me that question today. And I like to dial it down for Average Joe and Average Joe's. When you, when you look 
and I'm not a nightclub guy. All right. I'm in a roping. I'm in a barn right now with horses and cattle. All right. But I understand what that looks like. And when the DJ also owns the club, he can play whatever music he wants, George. And for the last 10 or 12 years, it has been a raging party. Okay. Well, they've changed the song. The song's changed, and everybody wants the song to change back. Everybody wants the party. Everybody wants this, and, and you're seeing it. I am seeing it every day. I've got family members and coworkers, and uh, I've got people texting me going, is this the bottom? Is this the bottom? Is this the bottom? Is this the bottom? It looks like a bottom. It's done a retrace. We're, hey, we've, you know, we're, we're a 618 fib retracement on this, and, and, and I think people mistake hope and sort of relief, the relief valve that they're looking for upwards, and I, and I, I think they want that. And until that goes away, until 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 the despair sets in, I, I don't see much bullish, George. And then on the other side of that coin, the guy that owns the club plays the music, and he's not changed his song yet. And I, and I said it today to to um, uh, uh, to Michael. He, he you know he posted something, and I replied to him. This doesn't change, and so you're going to get these brief pops, and you're going to get these rallies, and you're going to get people looking for the upside because that's all they've known. That's what they've known. And, and George, we've said this so many times. The average the average guy deploying capital today, the average kid at a bank, the average analyst has been there for three years. They've never been through this. They've never deployed capital in risk markets where risk is off. It's always when is risk on. And so average Joe, look, you're, you're going to see rallies like this. Energy is a whole different story. I don't have the time or the bandwidth to go into it today, but I'm not bearish energy at all. Um, but there's so many factors involved today that 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 it, it could go either way, path of least resistance. But I tell you this, Joe, look, this market could go up 10 percent in two days. It could go down 10 percent tomorrow. And you have to be put your hand on your pocket. Stick to your guns and do not let these swings emotionally uh, change your outlook on life. Or change your outlook on 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 your family and and and, and understand that we're all going to be here tomorrow, no matter what the market does. So uh, that's uh, it. That's it, George. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Javi, thirty seconds. Um, you mentioned briefly the other week uh, you gone. You had the first positive thing about energy in a number of months. Um, things still looking inflecting upwards for you as far as energy is concerned, Javier. Yes, I, I think. I, look, there are headwinds for sure. Dollars a headwind. Uh, there are some pockets of the globe that are seeing a little bit of a slowdown. But but other than that, the physical markets are pretty well bid, especially in crude. There's some products that concern me. But look, that 9 million barrel build today, I, I had 7 million barrel build, but we had record number of uh, product exports ever last week out of the U.S. Um, it, production is not increasing. And George, you've said it, I think I, I've been able to listen part part of the way tonight, but you've said it two or three times. The SPR thing is coming to an end. Um, if you take the 7 million barrel, uh, release off the books and you rejigger the way some of the Gulf coast worked and some of the hurricane worked, our balance sheet is tight. And then you start looking at diesel, George. I mean, we're like 1943 lows on stocks to use in the U S. Um, I, I, here's what I, here's what I think I could envision happening. I, I think, I think there is, there's a greater likelihood today of another squeeze going into the winter in energy, um, even in a cyclical Q4 continued retracement on liquidity in the equity and bond markets. That is a perfect nightmare for the Fed. And we we hear it, right? You have fiscal policy and you have monetary policy. Um, <clears throat> our 
our, 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 the bureaucrats in this administration are, are at the behest of votes walking us into what is going to be a difficult to manage situation um, if, if, if the stars align. And, and here's the thing. It takes a lot to align the stars, George. We all know that. And they're not, there's not perfect scenarios. But we are currently looking at something that, that could end up getting ugly. And, and, you know, that's the thing. If that takes place, right, and it, I, I have my odds are on it. I've, I'm, I'm long and I have been for the first time since uh, April. Um, that's fuel for the Fed's fire. And it, they've made it very clear that, it, that it's a concern. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm cautious. I'm not all in. I'm long, but that's where I am, George. Yeah, Javier, I'll say one last thing, and then we go to Jack Farrell to close the room. Javier, you know this. You've been around long. I'm going to call you tomorrow, but I'll let you get caught up. The market always has, has a way of – and, Julian, I think you want to step in, but one second. The market always has a way of finding you when you got the wrong position, when you're the wrong way. So, you know, finding the U.K. pension funds on the wrong side, finding the guys who are trying to keep the oil price down by dumping the SPR. You know, the market just finds you. You don't know what you're caught. And I got a sinking feeling, Javier, that you are completely right on the energy markets. Completely right. So, anyway, well, Julian, I get- do, I do, George. Thank you very much. Listen, thank you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen. Yeah. All right, well, we're we're about to wrap up here, Julian. Did you have a follow up before we go to Jack Farley, Julian? Yeah, just a just a very quick observation on Javier's comment. It scares me to death because it puts into focus one particular bond market and one particular gentleman, and that's. Um, the JGB market and Croda. And the issue is that um, this is a man who stood his ground, you know, arguably rightly, but he, as I said, he is in danger of losing control of the long end of the bond market. And if you're right, and we get a spike in oil, I don't know what level, let's say we go to 110, and Dolly Yen's already heading its way to 150, you will put Japanese core inflation above 4%. And I'm not sure that he can hold the long end of the JGB market in that situation. And the problem is, is the Japanese own our bond market. And if you think mortgage rates are high now and 30-year bond yields are high now, push the JGB market another 100 basis points higher and just watch. Julian, the way you put it, I, I, I bet money it's going to happen because we're in this kind of environment. You know, you know, you know the way these things work? It's sort of like contingent probabilities. If A, then B, then B, then C. It's like yeah. Murphy's Law in reverse. You, you know, Murphy's Law. Everything that can go is going wrong. So I, I, I'd back you on that one, my friend. I, I like the sound of it. All right. We're going to go to Mr. Farley. He's going to be the last speaker tonight. Hello, Jack. we got to stop meeting like this. I spent we were an hour and a half yesterday in the interview. I, by the way, I didn't get a chance to look at it, Jack. How did it come out? Were you happy with the check? George, I was really happy with it. Uh, I have high standards for interviews, but specifically high standards for you because I know just how not only smart, uh, but also entertaining you can be. I It was a very good interview. Uh, I recommend people uh, watch it. It's uh, on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro, and then the podcast is for guidance, Apple, Spotify. Okay, got, got the plug out of the way. Just bring it to the, today's price action, uh, George. I was very uh, pleased to say at the beginning of the day because I said, you know, George, he's super bearish. The name, the name of the video is "There's More Pain to Come." Twenty percent, fifty percent crash is incoming, and you know, we started off the day two percent, but then every as it went higher and higher, I said, oh man, uh, you know, the day is becoming less and less friendly to uh, the sort of the bearish vibe of, of the interview. Um, so because I'm the speaker, I, I don't have a ton of questions. I mean, I think there's 
did you know, George, I just wanted to give a shout out to you that this, the level of insight that you have and give in these rooms is incredible. Uh, and maybe what's even more impressive is the quality of, of people you're able to attract. I mean, the people on stage now, Jim Bianco, Julian Brigden, uh, Emma, and just the people who are listening now. I can see, you know, shout out Vincent Daniel, shout out Mark Hodas, shout out Jonathan Farrow, who does a great job on Bloomberg. Um, yeah, I'll just have to say a few things. I, I I, you know, as an interviewer, I, I'm very um, biased towards the sort of last person I interviewed. And I, I recently interviewed uh, uh, Porter Collins, uh, Vince, Vinny's uh, partner, as well as uh, Harris Kupperman. And I, you know, they are extremely bullish on, on oil. And I think that this, the, the trifecta of the SPR release, basically not running out of barrels, but getting to a level where sort of the, the, the adults in the room are saying, hey, you know, we, we can't really go below, uh, you know, 100 million or 200 million barrels um and then after the election so that stops china reopening and then russian barrels uh, getting off the market i, I think that if the spike the, the price of oil could uh spike materially and i also think that inflation you know as as we all know like um energy is very is is very volatile relative to other components of, of cpi and that's why it's frequently cut out in core uh, so, you know, the, the Joe Biden saying that the past three months inflation uh, was 2% annualized. That's because he took headline inflation and then took the monthly numbers and then annualized that. And yeah, that is a correct number. So shout out to uh, whoever did the statistics at the, at the White House over there. Um, but that was during a time when the month over month for energy CPI was negative 4% or negative 5%. So uh, if energy stops going down, I think that, you know, headline headline uh num numbers will be high and i don't think that the federal reserve really i mean they do care about core pce but i think it's not as if you know when you have a huge oil spike the fed says oh that's oil that doesn't count you know so we're, we're gonna we're gonna pivot um i don't think that happens um so i'll also t say today very interesting little fun stat uh today was the one of the few days where every single s p 500 sector etf uh, went up more than 1%, actually more than 1.15%. And uh, that didn't happen at all in 2021. It didn't happen at all in 2019. It only happens during sort of volatile periods, like the, the first sort of six months of 2020. Um, and it's, it's happened, I think, the fifth or fifth or sixth time this year. Uh, last thing I'll say before handing it over to you, George, is um, I've been, I've been re reading uh, Lords of Finance, a great book. And uh, the I recommend reading uh, part four, of, of, Lord, of Lords of Finance talking about the Bank of England, and it is very reminiscent of what happened. The only difference is then it was uh, deflation, and now it is inflation. And I also say, uh, I mean, the Bank of England, they stop, unless I, you know, there's some news item that I uh, have not been on top of today, they're, they're going to stop their interventions tomorrow. Um, and we'll see. So I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that, you know, the, the, bank, the, the, the guilt market is order has been restored i, I think uh just bianco who said it was a stay of execution so that stay of execution ends tomorrow um george i'll, I'll thank you for but, but giving Jack, me this wasn't there some word on the street that there was they were going to u-turn on the fiscal side or julian maybe you can answer it and i don't know if that actually came out to fruition or if that was just rumors uh that bloomberg was putting out i think uh, jonathan farrow was talking about it early on this morning uh, there's, I mean, there were rumours out and then there were counter rumours to the other extent. So we, it isn't clear. I mean, I think um, Liz Truss is under enormous pressure. I'm hearing that the more sensible heads in the Tory party are beginning to gang up on her. But 
you know, she, she, it's very hard in the UK to force uh, a prime minister out. I mean, essentially, you'd be asking for a vote of no confidence if you got her to turn on this policy. She's been in there a month. Not, I mean, it's going to be hard. She couldn't just be like, oh, whoops, I kind of made a mistake. <laughs> no, she couldn't. I mean, she could turn around and try and find the money elsewhere, which is kind of the rumour that she'll tax the corporate sector. Um, but we'll see. I, I, I think it's a very, very fluid situation, put it that way. But I do agree that the that certainly the bank is, what I'm hearing is the bank is determined to be very, very tough on this because they see this as a fight for their independence, which is relatively new, remember. It is not enshrined. It is a new development. So, so they are determined yeah, to fight. Yeah, so Julie, just translate that to us, for, for us mortals here. So you're saying the bank's going to stand tough and, and they're going to stick it to the pension? What do you think is going to happen here? No, so that I'm saying that they're going to stand tough against the government. Right. So if the government, if... You know, if trust is like, well, I know that the Bank of England will have my back and won't prevent the guilt market melting down. Don't believe that's the case at all. Right. Got Which it. means a whole lot of contagion. Which means a whole lot of contagion, yeah. And it's happening elsewhere. Look at the oats market, the French bond market today, right? I mean, if it hadn't been for the, you know, the reversal in all risks today, that was closing on all highs right along the curve. Um, the bond market was doing it in tens and thirties. Um, it's not a very stable bond market out there. These losses are inordinate, and it's a much, 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 much bigger market um, than anything. People get myopically focused on the equity market, but you lose control of the bond market, and oh my god! I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, Julian. If we just go back to where we were at, I don't know, eight thirty Eastern or whatever time it was this morning, or nine thirty at its nadir. I mean. It really, it really looked pretty grim, didn't it? Yeah, it really did look pretty damn grim. Uh, sorry, just I want to make a quick point. Uh, Julian, that's a great point. And, and Emma, thanks for that question. Emma, I think inherent in your question is the assumption that the driver of the, the chaos in the guilt market is what is perceived by the market as fiscal uh, impropriety, you know, spending too much money, not raising enough taxes. And I think that is the dominant narrative, and you could be right about that. But I think, I, you know, the great my, how... my understanding was was this that that ba basically the Bank of England, the governor Andrew Bailey, was basically saying to the government, like you know, as Julian kind of alluded to, like I'm going to stand tough. So either you guys change something, or else I'm just going to let it go. Up, you got three days. So I don't know if that's how how the. No, yeah, that, based on my reading of the news, I think that's completely accurate. I, I was just drawing a, a attention to Michael Howell's point earlier that it's really sort of that the FT says, oh, it's because of the pension and it, it, sorry, excuse me, it's because of the deficit. And I'm sure that it, it does play a role. But he's saying the reason that this the liquidity is happening is because uh, quantitative easing is over. Oh, Central absolutely. banks are not buying bonds. And, like I'm just looking at uh, the uk deficit it's been going on for 10 years it's been going on for a long time right in, in, billion, in billions of pounds you know the deficit is smaller now by a large a large like hundreds of billions of dollars smaller or, um than it was in 2020 and 2021 so uh the yeah, point being, it, it really is the support that, uh, from the bank of england that's not there and that's the driving factor right. certainly julian one last question if i may julian we talked about this the other day but just to come back on it do you think this information content with respect to what's going on in the UK, do you think there's information content in that and that should be as a warning as to what we might see happening elsewhere? Oh, definitely. 
definitely. Um, I mean, the exception perhaps is the United States, right, where there still seems to be, it's not one central bank that isn't trapped, that is seems determined to deliver on tightening and so can reassure long-dated um, bond investors, right? So if you look at, say, the term risk premium, kind of the, don't get too technical on this, but sort of the insurance that a, a bond investor should uh, demand for taking duration risk, as opposed to just rolling his money over in the overnight, that's actually still negative. So the Fed has total credibility. The problem that you've got with places like the UK and continental Europe, and even to some degree Japan at some point, is that the central banks we know are unable to raise rates to the same degree because of the underlying weaknesses in the economy, be that a function of they didn't get the stimulus, be that a function of the fact that they've got much shorter dated um, bond, uh, sorry, mortgage markets, which means you're going to get much quicker, you're going to get problems in the housing market. Um, that is giving some concern to bondholders. And if you look at how offside some of these European uh, interest rates are relative to where nominal GDP is, um, you better hope that we get a depression there um, and save those central banks. Otherwise, God knows what they're going to do to the long end of these bond markets. On that happy note, Mr. Brigden, um, <laughs> three hours and 10 minutes. Again, what happened to an hour and a half room? You know, the really funny thing is, Brigden, um, not Brigden, Jared Dillian was in here for this first 30 or 40 minutes. And again, I don't know if he was intimidated by the bears in the room or he actually had legitimate technical issues. But Jared's a good friend. We always like hearing from him. And he put up, a, he, he actually gave a very credible uh, uh, account of things. So, any anyway, of I want to thank all of you uh, Julian, Jim, Javier, Jack, Bobby, Emma, Michael Hal, Michael Kantrowitz. I mean, all, all the others that were here are now gone. Another phenomenal room. Um, we have um, our next room is going to be on Monday with Fred Hickey, um, who doesn't make that many public appearances, but he's going to be speaking on not just precious metal stocks, but tech stocks and just the everything bubble. And I haven't tweeted this out, but I will make the announcement now. Everyone's been wondering um, who... Mr. X is for um, who Mr. X is going to be on Monday, October 24. And I think this speaker is going to break Twitter. So I will tweet this out um, momentarily. But for those of you who um, are in the room, I'll give you a little one up. You'll know something that um, the others won't know until they see the tweet. Um, if you are familiar with uh, Mr. Bill Browder, who wrote Red Notice, who, um, and by the way, if you've not read Red Notice, you should run, not, but not run, walk, but run to read it. Um, the most successful Western hedge fund manager having invested in Russia uh, in the uh, 90s. The book reads like something out of a Tom Clancy novel. Um, he is a... Uh, I guess you could say wanted by uh, the Russian authorities, not allowed to set foot in Russia anymore. Fascinating story um, uh, of, of his experience uh, investing in Russia. Further, some of you may be familiar um, with the Magnitsky Act, uh, which was passed by the U.S. Congress, named after uh, Bill Bratter's um, 
lawyer who was uh, killed by the Russian authorities. Anyway, it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a phenomenal, phenomenal event. That's going to be on the twenty fourth, I believe it's twelve noon, if I'm not mistaken. So we got Fred Hickey Monday the seventeenth, Bill Brad on the twenty fourth. There'll be other rooms to be sure. At any rate, this has been another phenomenal room. I want to thank all of you. This is great. We're going to do it again before too long. We'll probably have a room before Monday, but who knows? Everyone, take care. Be safe. Good night. Bye bye. Thanks, George.